This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Good to be back with you. Yes, post-surgery, seven stab wounds later, I'm healed. I'm back. I can't do a sit-up yet, but uh, how many of us can, honestly? Thank you. Thank you. Which is good to be with you. And by the way, we couldn't have picked a better topic uh, for me today. We're going to be talking about health care and uh, the public option, which is like the third rail of politics, apparently. Democrats have always been pushing for the public option. Republicans, you know, think it means death panels and all these other, you know, fearful, scary things. But our guest today is going to be talking about how uh, maybe a public option could actually solve some of the problems with even the current bill that may get through the Senate. If I mean, if it is going to get through the Senate, it's it's pretty it's at a pretty scary point, right? Wrong. Yeah, apparently it's a it's a health care bill because they're going to repeal and replace it. Yeah, isn't it I more mean, of a tax bill? It's a tax bill, but okay. sure. But and twenty six million people more, fewer will be insured. It's, it's 20, I mean, 22. Okay, yeah. It's actually improving on the the House bill, which was twenty three yeah. million people. See, so they did. They put their heads together yeah. and they found another million that they could insure. There you go. So maybe this could provide some answers. As the president asks, it's less mean. By a mil- yeah, I mean, one million people. It's still mean. It's just less mean. Maybe he meant mean like average. Yeah, I think that's what he meant. It's yeah. less average. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we'll be talking about the public option and and mainly to inform you that it, the public option doesn't necessarily mean what you think it means. It's been vilified. Because pretty much it, everyone's like, well, you shouldn't – the government shouldn't be in health care. OK. Well, they are. That's why they're making new bills. Um, but we don't want private public money to be going to private enterprises like health insurance companies. Well, it already does. So – and well, it doesn't mean you're going to have – you're going to have fewer choices because you're just going to have the public choice. Well, actually right now that's not the case because you can be on Medicare and go to different places. You can go to – you can take your Medicare and go to whatever hospital serves in your area. So you still have choices with your Medicare money. Right. Anywho. If it's still around in 10 years. Yeah. I mean, if it's still around. (laughs) Plus, you know, do you want the government running your end-of-life decisions? Uh, They kind of still already are. Yeah. Because they're still producing all the laws that run your end-of-life decisions. And in a way, it's kind of baked into the the plan that they're talking about right now. Yeah. Is that, you know, when they decide whether you get funds for certain – Procedures, that's kind of deciding whether you live or not. Right. Or or I guess if you're worth it. If you're worth spending all that money on. Yeah. I mean, you're 70 and you have cancer. Ah. Maybe. Can't you just ride this one out? Yeah. I mean, do you really want to fight it at your age? And that's kind of what you're going to be pushed against. Yeah. But, you know. The public option. So we'll get into all of that craziness. Plus, of course, we'll continue to celebrate Sunglasses Day. Uh, of all the days of the year, this is my favorite day because you get to wear your sunglasses. 
Really? But you're just wearing your regular glasses in here. Well, I have a weird moment because my drive, depending on when I leave, I have some time where I need sunglasses and then I have time where I don't need sunglasses. And then I have time – just a few seconds where I need them again and then I don't. And I get so darn tired of changing them. I have yellow lensed sunglasses that I wear in the mornings. Okay. Oh, you're that guy. Yeah. I've heard of you. It's like – Pitch black outside. Yeah. I put these things on and they actually kind of – They help you see. A little bit. But mainly it's because the air conditioner blows into my eyes and dries up my contacts and oh. then I go nuts that Well, way, aren't so. they goggles? I think they're goggles. I think No, seen, they're just sunglasses. Like snow goggles, skiing goggles? I wear 3D glasses whenever – I mean I'm in the car or if I'm looking – I'm outside. Oh, yeah. One's red, one's blue. Yeah. And you wouldn't believe the sights that I see. No, I <laughs> – you know what? It's funny. I can kind of imagine. Doesn't it feel like everything's like jumping into your face? Oh yeah, yeah. I'm so, always jittery. Yeah, that's jumping why you're around. So jittery when you get here. <laughs> I almost hit that pole. Um, we will. Uh, we'll talk sunglasses, of course. Also coming up, some empty news. Hey, you want to get back? I guess at your doctors and everybody that just performed surgery. One thing you could do is tweet your medical bills out. We'll talk oh, about yeah. a woman that Ooh. did that. Fascinating. Story: Her son had open heart surgery, and she posted the bill on her Twitter feed, and it's amazing. So, Jeff, have you got your bill for your newborn yet? I have not. They purposely wait a couple of months, yeah, just, just so that you just know, to make sure the baby well, takes. <laughs> yeah, keep us updated. We have to know if you actually got you know charged for like the delivery room that you did not use. I guarantee you, we will. Okay. Well, they'll call it lobby fees. <laughs> yeah. If you're going to deliver in our lobby, that's an extra fee. Same price as the delivery room. Then they had to call in the cleanup crew. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yuck. They had to rewax the floors. <laughs> it was horrible. Uh, we'll get to all that fun straight ahead. But first, let's do the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what do we need to know this morning? The U.S. is planning to name China as one of the world's worst offenders in human trafficking and forced labor. labor Reuters reports citing a congressional source and a person familiar with the matter. The source also said the Secretary of State Rex Tillerson plans to classify China as a Tier 3 offender alongside Iran, North Korea, and Syria. Wow. This follows President Trump's tweet calling out China for not doing enough to help put pressure on North Korea. The move could strain the administration's relationship with Beijing, which Trump has worked to strengthen over the past few months. China's downgraded ranking is slated to be announced today in an annual State Department report. In other news, former uh, pharmacy executive Barry Cadden will serve 108 months in prison for his role in a 2012 meningitis outbreak. A judge sentenced him on Monday. Caden is the former head of New England Compounding Center, a now-defunct pharmaceutical company that sold contaminated medication in 2012. The medication sickened 778 people, 76 of whom died. Prosecutors accused Caden of knowingly selling contaminated medicine. He was convicted of racketeering charges in March, but dodged second-degree murder charges, which would have sent him to prison for at least 35 years. His company would take medicine... And if you needed a, like a special dosage, not like the generic one yeah. that's, that's that's sold, they, they they would take them and make a custom dosage for you. But as uh, I believe it was CBS that did a bunch of behind the scenes sort of uh, reporting on this, you go in and the test tubes they would use to mix oh, things no. were full of like mold and all. I mean, just the, the equipment was dirty and that contaminated and got at the people. people. Yeah, and they died. 
Holy cow. So bad news, but uh, they caught him and uh, he's going to serve 108 months in prison for his role in that. Good. You're going to make us do the math on that? Yeah, somehow that's not enough. Huh. Oh, well. Russell Westbrook named the NBA's most valuable player after finishing with a record-breaking season. The Oklahoma City Thunder point guard was awarded uh, the award at the uh, inaugural award show Monday night for mm. the NBA. Did you watch any of that, Matt? Uh, no, my son kept updating me. Yeah, I didn't watch it either. He became the uh, second player ever to average a triple-double, and he has now become the first player since Moses Malone in 1981 to be named MVP while playing for a team that won less than 50 games. Triple wow. double is that three beef patties with no, two? No, not at all. Okay. So uh, special sauce. So he he gets the award. They tried this experiment of pushing it after the playoffs. Yeah. No one cares anymore. Yeah. Everyone's attention has moved on because the playoffs I think, yeah, are over. They missed that at that window. Yeah. They they tried. Uh, everyone talks about the MVP as the season is ending. Yeah. And then there's two months of playoffs, and then nobody cares. Well, and especially happening. Westbrook because he didn't play in the playoffs at all. So right, he I mean, the, I mean he, he did, but he didn't play in the finals. Right. So. He got, well, he got the first round, the last month yeah. of the playoffs. He wasn't even out yeah. there. He's your best player. That's and he, too yeah. long to wait. So he kind of lost that. Finally, Tropical Storm Cindy may have been downgraded to a tropical depression last week, but that doesn't mean the Gulf Coast residents are in the clear. As the storm moves inland, it's still expected to dump enough rainfall between Texas and Florida to cause severe flooding, which it did which raises the possibility of another threat that may take some locals by surprise, floating fire ants. Ooh. The notoriously tough insects are just dan- are dangerous when they're wet, as they are when they're dry. <laughs> According to Alabama officials who are warning residents to keep their eyes peeled for floating mounds of fire ants, floodwaters will not kill the fire ants. Instead, their colonies will emerge from the soil, form a loose ball, float and flow with the water until reaching a dry area Mm. or object. Floating colonies can look like ribbons, streams, or ball of ants floating on the water. These amoeba-like masses contain all the colony's members, worker ants, broods, and you know, eggs, larvae, and They, got, uh, they pupae, take everything they need. Winged reproductive males and females, queen ants are all in this ball that's sort of rolling through the water. The warning notes that the invasive species are rugged and will latch onto anything that they come in contact with, such as piles of debris from floated homes. I'll add human beings. If you happen to stumble into one of these, they yeah. just grab you and they don't let go. You can hit them with um, a power washer, they said. And you know, they won't let go. And they won't let go. Well, their mandibles they, just hook well, let's in. Let's not use a power washer. Well, and plus, I heard they're kind of like gremlins, too, where the more water you pour on them, the more they multiply. Ooh, see, but it, you know what? I It's a good point. It's it's a wet it's a wet burn instead of a dry burn, you know? Wouldn't you rather have a, a, a wet burn? No. Than a dry burn? It's kind of like... Well, the burn is poison. Yeah. So, but it's like it's like a dry heat. So it's not like a humid heat. It's a. I'd rather have the dry heat. I think personally. Just it's different than the wet, humid heat of red. Alabama officials. That's the silliest thing I've ever heard. Alabama officials are recommending you do not stumble into the colony. Yeah. Stay away from it. Well, that's great advice. Wear long sleeves and bring a power washer. Well, no, because apparently that doesn't work. You can, it could be on you. You jump in you're the dead. water. You can't drown. You're just dead. It just sounds like you're dead. They're just evil. Mm. And it was an accident. Hold on, where was this? Alabama? All through the south. Fire ants are all through the south. But the floating pack. They all float. That's what they're saying is that this is their survival technique. <sighs> so you're not going to flood them out. No. So when Billy says, get the hose, 
you can maybe push them away, but that's about it. Yeah, but you got to you got to deal with them one by one. It sounds like almost. <sighs> Fire. It's ants. like our producers. They just won't go away. One by one, they just keep coming in. Oh, I missed you guys. Holy cow! So much to uh, talk about. Um, don't want to brag, but uh, but you're going to four stab wounds. Mm. To take out one gallbladder, four wounds. Oh, I thought you were in a gang fight or something. No, I did too when I woke up. I'm oh, like, I see. what the? Uh, but I have this weird, I think I'm having phantom pains mm. from my pancreas, uh, not my pancreas, from my gallbladder that's gone. Like uh, you're like, oh, I feel like I still have my gallbladder. Yeah. Oh. It's weird. It's really strange. It's like my organs are like, where's, hey, where's Jimmy? Do you miss it already? I do. It's sad. I mean, you're with your gallbladder your whole life. Mm. The next thing you know, you wake up from a foggy fog and you reach down to just pet your old gallbladder (laughs) and it's gone. But the space is still there. So every once in a while I get this weird like contraction Mm. and it's telling me. Those are are just Braxton Hicks contractions, by the way. Couldn't they, couldn't they put some fuzzy dice in there or something just yeah. to fill the space? I told them not to leave anything in there. All right. Well. My doctor was great, by the way. Dr. Granger. Granger? I hardly know her. Mm. That's the joke I used with him like 10 times. And? He said about more than 10 when I was under the influence. Oh, wow. But I miss you, Jimmy. Jimmy the gallbladder, we called him. I did ask the doctor to save it. We're going to tan it up. Oh, nice. And I'm going to make a coin purse. So I'll let you guys check it out. You don't know how much you love your gallbladder, folks, till it's missing. I didn't even know you needed it. But uh, I'll take four stab wounds for that little fella any day. Anyway. There's a box of Kleenex right there for you. Funny thing, I don't even need it. I'm just sad. But I've had enough time to mourn my losing some of my innards. I do feel a lot better. And I lost like 14 pounds. But I'm starving. No, I'm not. Hey, great show coming up. We're going to be talking health care costs. What on earth is going to happen to this health care bill? Are the, is the Senate even going to be able to pass that thing? I doubt it. Come on. We're talking the public option. It is another option, but it's one that has, has a pretty bad reputation. We're going to give you the ins, the outs, the ups, the downs, the truth about the public option up next. Secretary Tom Price of the U.S. Health and Human Services is currently traveling the country as he tries to meet with business leaders and citizens to ensure them that they will not lose their health care coverage. This uh, listening tour coincides with the Republicans' quick push to, uh, I guess, repeal and replace Obamacare. While politicians drag this process out, we need to ask an important question here. Is there a simpler way to fix Obamacare? Remember, so many uh, of the the companies that are providing insurance are backing out. They're no longer uh, providing that insurance. They're no longer offering their services in certain parts of the country, which is leaving certain areas empty without anybody there to provide uh, the insurance that's necessary. So there 
is no marketplace in some places and no competition in other places. So here to speak with us a little bit today about a possible solution uh, or, or additive solution that could be added to the game that might create some answers to a lot of the problems we're facing with the current healthcare problem is Professor Jacob S. Hacker. Uh, he is the father of the public option, a professor of political science at Yale University. And we we wanted him to come talk to us today to explain this public option because it, it really has been, um, I guess, maligned in every way possible. So, Dr. Hacker, thank you so much for your time today. Well, thanks for having me, Matt. Couldn't be more timely. Is it totally? Is is it true that the public option is Lord Darth Vader's favorite option? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I remember during the debate um, over health care uh, reform back in 2009 uh, that Glenn Beck <laughs> had a picture of me in one of his programs. He didn't actually say my name, but I'm a cyclist, and some of the, the guys that I ride bikes with um, have different political views than I do. And one of them looked at me and said, man, he did everything but put, you know, uh, <laughs> pointy little ears on you, you know, yep. and, a, and a forked tail. Yeah, you're and the devil. So it, it was it was definitely uh, demonized. But let me just explain simply, because I've I found in my conversations with Americans of all political stripes that um, that it actually has a lot of support. And indeed, that's what the polls show. So the public option is simply letting every American who doesn't have coverage from their employer or um, or who doesn't have coverage from the Medicaid program or the Medicare program uh, to buy into a new public plan that looks a lot like Medicare. In fact, I think it should just basically be a new, let's say, Part E of Medicare, Medicare for everyone. Hmm. Um, and you could get that coverage in the way that people are buying coverage today through the health insurance exchanges under the Affordable Care Act. Um, but the idea is that even in parts of the country that have no private plans, and there are a few, or have only one, there would be some competition and you'd have the ability to buy into a plan that's familiar to most Americans uh, and popular. Um, and, and as I said, you know, when you, when you poll people, when you talk with them, they say, that makes a lot of sense. Medicare is pretty cost efficient. It has low administrative costs. It, um, it has had slower growth of its costs than private insurance. Most Americans on it are overwhelmingly satisfied with it, and um, and it would get it would deal with two problems. One is that there isn't enough competition in a lot of the country between private plans, and two, and I think this is really important that right now the plans are competing in part by getting narrower and narrower networks um, and doing other things that people are not such fans of. And, and in a lot of the country, it's not like the top-rated plans that are in the market. Uh, in the exchanges, it's often sort of bottom feeding plans uh, that have stuck around. As you know, a lot of the top insurers have pulled out of the exchanges. Um, so you get a really good benchmark plan to set the standard uh, for the private sector to ensure that people are protected, even if private plans pull out or change their behavior. And that could be really important, I should say, if the Senate health uh, plan passes, uh, because it actually frees up the states to really cut back on a lot of the protections that people have. Yeah. So I'm hopeful, uh, to be uh, frank, that this bill that's before the Senate right now does not get enacted, and I can explain why. But um, but I think the public option would be a good option, so to speak, um, even if it did. It seems like there's so much misinformation around it because, like, like you're saying, um, 
the the doctors that provide the service for Medicare Part E, those that would get this, the public option, are the exact same doctors I go to through my corporate plan. So it's exactly and, or, and, and you, yeah, no, or, explain or that. that your your family members go to through Medicare. Right. I mean, yeah, exactly. So you know, Medicare is often discussed as a as a single payer, um, which I don't think is a very <laughs> evocative term, but. But it is worth understanding that Medicare is essentially just a big insurance plan, and um, and it doesn't own any facilities, right? Everyone goes to a private uh, doctor or hospital, um, and the vast majority, um, indeed, I think it's you know at roughly ninety percent at present of hospitals and physicians, basically all hospitals and about ninety percent of physicians take Medicare patients, so. You're really talking about the biggest possible network in the country and mm. wherever you are in the country. So, for example, right now, with the plans that are being offered, usually you have a very limited network and you're out of network coverage. Say if you're out of your state or if you are going to a doctor or hospital who's not in your network, uh, our, that coverage is very skimpy. And, and there's a lot of surprise medical bills as well where right. people go to the hospital and they think they're covered. Um, but then they discover after the fact that the hospital was in the network, but the doctor who treated them wasn't. Um, and that's just ridiculous, right? I mean, that's no way to run a healthcare system. And a lot of times you hear this, you know, line that well, people should be able to shop around for healthcare. And but what does that mean? Um, and it really means, right, that you can choose high quality providers and um, and the ability to make sure that you're getting the best care possible. It doesn't. It can't mean that when you're on an emergency room gurney uh, that you have to ask whether everybody who's going to treat you in the next uh, two hours um, is going to be uh, within your network. So I think we really need to rethink what it means to say people should be shopping for their medical care. And I think the best way to understand it is that people should be able to choose their health plan. And under this proposal, the public plan would be an option, and it would be right alongside the private insurance plans, just like in Medicare. If you have a family member in Medicare, you probably know that they can choose a private uh, Medicare Advantage plan, uh, or they can be in the so-called traditional Medicare program, which is a lot more like Blue Cross Blue Shield uh, or you know a traditional plan where you can go to any doctor or hospital you want. Now, what I hear and and explain this to me is that uh but fewer and fewer doctors they don't they don't make the same money they're making whatever 30 cents on the dollar on a medicare patient than they would make on a regular patient through our insu- regular insurance um so doctors don't want this eventually doctors are going to opt out and eventually all these people will be left without caregivers but your data is completely different than that well look the, the, this is one of these cases where you know are you going to believe um, the, the doomsayers or your own eyes, right? I mean, Medicare patients have no complaints about getting access to doctors. And most, as I said, 90% of doctors and essentially all hospitals accept Medicare payments. So it can't be too, it can't be that penurious. It can't be that, um, you know, uh, inexpensive for them. Uh, the, the prices can't be that low for them that they, that they aren't willing to accept it. I mean, there is an issue, and I, I, I think it's really important to understand. We are the only country in the world that essentially lets um, the market uh, 
a distorted market decide what prices should be. Mm. Most countries have a negotiation process uh, and a regulatory process that determines how much you pay. And uh, that is, it turns out, a lot better at controlling costs. This is not a controversial point. Some people argue that that using these kinds of regulatory and uh, negotiation approaches to controlling costs has other problems, but no one disputes that other countries spend on average uh, about half as much as we do per person on healthcare, and their prices are much, 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 much lower. And so Medicare is um, more like the, the system that other countries have, and it's as a result, it actually has costs that have grown more slowly, prices that have grown more slowly, and prices that are a bit below the private sector on average. The real difference between Medicare, and this is coming from work of a colleague of mine at Yale, Zach Cooper, the real difference is variation. So in Medicare, there's, uh, there is some variation allowed across regions, but there's pretty much a set price within regions um, for services. And, and, and often that's based on what you come into the hospital with. It's called a diagnosis-related group. So if you come in and you have a certain diagnosis, then Medicare pays a certain amount. And that's what private sector plans also use now. Um, They followed Medicare in adopting this. Anyway, the difference is that in private plans, the ratio between the highest and lowest payment uh, prices is just enormous comparatively. Um, And that is a really big deal because if we could just bring down the very high end, um, we'd do a lot to contain costs. So the, the public option will certainly reduce the rate of growth of healthcare spending uh, relative to, to the private insurance system. Um, and it will do so um, particularly in areas where there's these really strongly consolidated hospital and, uh, and doctor systems that are the ones that, that occupy the very top end of the price structure. And I, I live in such an area. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yale, I'm going to badmouth my employer for just a moment. Um, <laughs> Yale University operates the Yale medical system, and it has bought up all of the local hospitals. It, it actually has most of the group practices now as well. Um, there is essentially a single payer or at least single provider in the area, and it charges pretty high prices. And, uh, and the result is that we're a pretty high-cost medical area, and we're not the only place. This is happening all over the country. It makes total sense if you're a healthcare provider. It just doesn't make a lot of sense for us as consumers and our government as a uh, as a a responsible steward of taxpayer dollars to pay those high prices. Hmm. No, we just had, by the way, thank heavens for tenure, or you would have just been fired right there, Jacob. Um, but, <laughs> yes. I mean, <laughs> well, I have a friend. I have a friend who uh, who spent his last years um, touring the 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 seas on a sailboat that was entitled that that was uh, the name of the sailboat was uh, Academic Freedom. Um, <laughs> so I I'm very I'm very happy to have that Academic Freedom, but this. I just want to be clear that this is nothing. Uh, this is not a Yale problem or oh, a yeah, no. problem. This is a national problem. I just had a, a friend talk to me about that they had cataract surgery. They did one eye at one hospital that went with a surgeon. That same surgeon went to another hospital system, did the other eye, and their bills were $5,000 different for the exact same procedure by the exact same doctor. That's exactly the, that's exactly the problem. And so there really, there really are not, uh, there are no secrets here. Um, when you have a system such as ours where you have insurance paying, 
there are very little in the way of incentives for doctors and hospitals or for patients uh, to push for lower costs. And the, the fact is that um, we as consumers of care, we need that protection. You know, people tell me, well, can't we just all shop around for our insurance? We don't need, you know, shop around for our health care. We don't need insurance. And I say, you know, saying we don't need insurance to buy health care is like saying we don't need mortgages to buy houses. Hmm. The big ticket stuff is beyond our means. And also, we're not usually in a position to bargain for lower prices. We want that insurance company to have our back. Um, and the fa- but the fact is, is that the, the providers of care have a lot more market power than insurance companies or than we do. And, and that's why it's a different market than a lot of markets, um, because we don't know what we need in a lot of cases. So I just try to point out that in an ideal, well-functioning, competitive market, we, um, you know, we might need a, uh, certain kinds of you know, catastrophic insurance, but we wouldn't need to have um, all, uh, a, someone bargaining on our behalf. We wouldn't need to have um, the kind of rules that we, ha- that we have already in the system or the kind of programs necessarily that we already have. But that's not the market we're dealing with. And, and the, it, public op- oh, go ahead. the public option is really a response to the reality that um, you need a heavy on your side. And that's why I think it's really important that it be tied to Medicare and, and sort of taking that bargaining power that comes from these, um, the millions of people who are in Medicare already. No, totally. And it seems like you, you need a heavy on your side, but the only heavies in the game are insurance companies. Um, and and yeah. all, the, all Medicare Part E would be, the everyone Medicare option would be just having that heavy that can go in and can have enough people behind them that you could, you know, bargain for better rates, better prices. You could demand different levels of service. Um, but you're but so really the government would just be competing against every other insurance company that wants to play in that exactly. market. And, and, and you would have a choice. Um, and employer based plans would still be there. Now, Matt, I. That you're you you could be out there selling this plan. I really that's exactly right. One question that people have is sort of how do we get from here to there? Yeah, um, and that's a that's a tricky question. So first of all, if we want to get to a, a world in which everyone has uh, access to a public option and which everyone has insurance, we really shouldn't pass the Senate Health Bill, which according to the Congressional Budget Office would lead to. 15 million people losing their coverage next year and 22 million losing it over the next 10 years relative to what would have uh, been the case. So, so let's first say that uh, we go back to the drawing board <laughs> yeah. and, 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 and tear this up and think about a, a better approach. So the next thing we'd say is, look, if people have good employment-based insurance, that's, then we shouldn't worry about it. And under the Affordable Care Act, there are rules about insurance that employers provide that so that they can't just like offer you, you know, bare bones coverage and then call it a day. So, so we've already got those rules in place, but if your employer doesn't provide insurance, then this is the big change. I think that you should be automatically enrolled in one of the coverage options that would be available under the, under the system I'm talking about. So if you don't have employer based insurance, Right. You could have low income uh, and be eligible for Medicaid. Right. The state federal health insurance program that has done so much to cover more Americans. If your income isn't low enough to qualify for Medicaid under the current system, you get these tax credits uh, to buy coverage through the so-called health insurance exchanges. Now, what I'm saying is that you should be able to buy the 
Medicare Part E, Medicare for Everyone, through those exchanges. But I think there's a really big problem with the current system. It requires, it relies on this really un, uh, unlovable mandate that people have coverage, and that doesn't obviously work because not everyone has coverage. Right. So my proposal would be that very simply, that if your employer says, I'm not covering you, um, they would send your name to the local exchange, uh, the state exchange, or um, in the case of those who are over 65 to Medicare, or the case of those um, who are covered by some other um, uh, program that's not Medicaid or the exchanges like a veterans program or the like, they, they would send that name and you would be automatically enrolled through the exchange in either um, Medicaid, if you have a low income, or in um, the public option. Mm. And this is controversial, and you could have it that you get sort of randomly enrolled, uh, or there's a default plan that isn't the public option if you aren't eligible for Medicaid. This is getting a little complicated, but I'm not a fan of that. And my sense is that most Americans would be pretty happy with Medicare-like coverage. And if you're if you don't pick a private plan, then you go into the the public option, just as it, just as the, is the case with Medicare. If you don't pick a Medicare Advantage private plan, you just get the basic Medicare coverage, so the traditional Medicare coverage. So, under my system, everyone who didn't get employment-based um, insurance would be automatically covered. And the, there are two additional issues you'd have to deal with. Right? Some people aren't going to be able to afford the insurance. Right. And that's true under the current system. So the question you have to ask is, do you want to allow people to opt out? Um, and, and I think that's a difficult question. Um, my, my idea would be, instead of allowing them to opt out, let's just make the system generous enough that they can afford the coverage. And the way to do that, in my view, is to require that not only the individual consumer and the taxpayer pay for your coverage, but also that employers uh, contribute something. So under my system, if your employer said, I don't give this person coverage, then they'd have to pay a modest amount as a share of your so payroll. A, a tax, a payroll tax, or yeah. Yeah, a payroll tax, although I would like to call it a premium contribution. A premium <laughs> contribution to the community. But that's <laughs> yeah. not essential to the system, but it just would make it a lot easier to do the financing. It's also the case that, look, if employers right now, if they drop coverage, they don't pay really much in the way of a penalty. So there's right. not a lot of incentive for them to provide coverage. But I do think that if you move to a system in which there's really good automatic coverage for everyone who doesn't get employment-based health insurance, then you don't want insurers, you don't want employers to have a big incentive to drop coverage. So if they have to pay a modest amount on behalf of workers they don't cover, that would discourage them from just dropping their coverage. So that's, that's it. I mean, I know that sounds pretty complicated, but compared with the current system, that is really straightforward. And it's really just – oh, go ahead – no, I was just going to say, do you get coverage from your employer? Yeah, if yeah. If not, you, you either get Medicaid if you're poor, Medicare if you're over 65, or the public option as a default uh, if you're in the middle. I, and and, and we'll, t- we'll come back and talk more about this, Jacob, because I think in the end – that, that you opened up some really big questions again, and then these are the political decisions we need to make. And it seems like once we start trying to discuss these political sides, like uh, are we going to tax employers now? Is is you know is this healthcare? Um, it, do we want everybody covered? Because it seems like in the country there's still that debate of whether we still want everyone covered. Uh, but like you were saying, 37 million people with this new proposed plan over the next 10 years will be 
uninsured um, above and beyond where we currently are. So decisions we got to make, and in the end, they become political decisions, especially when we invoke this uh, public option. But it also, folks, remember, it's not like the, the government is creating a hospital system. They're creating an insurance system, which they're already a part of. And that insurance system is going to change all the other levels of how you're insured, the level to which you're insured, the costs that can be charged. Uh, a lot of this, having just been in the hospital, is hospitals make a lot of money. Now, they, they would say they don't. Um, but there's a reason Yale, for example, keeps buying up every clinic around them and now have a monopoly in their area, as do many other hospital systems around the country. So it, it seems to be working for a lot of the hospitals. Um, anyway, let's take a break. Come back. Helping us all understand the public option. It's, it's one of many options, but it's one that you don't hear as much talk about uh, in this round of the health care bill. Stick with us, folks. Helping you unwind the chaos. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the phone with us uh, from Yale University is professor of political science there, uh, Jacob S. Hacker, also known as the father of the public option. He Plus, he's a human being, for crying out loud. He's not the spawn of darkness. He... Um, but he's he has been, uh, you know, beat up pretty harshly. But then again, he knows his stuff. So Professor Hackett is known for his research and writing regarding healthcare policy and especially his development of the so-called public option. And today is walking us through this public option, which which, by the way, could be an answer to many of the woes that we have in the current bill. Um, I mean, the bill would obviously need to be changed quite a bit. But uh, Dr. Hacker, thank you for being with us again. Oh, it's it's totally my pleasure. And and before the break, um, you were talking a bit about this political nature of this debate. And I, I have to say, having lived through this uh, a pretty intense period in my own life while um, while advocating for this idea that it is necessarily a political debate. We all care deeply about this issue. And um, if you ask ordinary Americans what they care about, they care about having financial protection and access to good health care. And so I really feel like that the guiding principles in this debate should be guided, should be driven by what works in, mm. in, in the system and what's going to provide people with that protection. And so, you know, it took... It, you know, it took many years of research for me to feel like I could answer that question. But, but you know, once I started looking at the various ideas out there, it really became clear to me that this part of our system that works best is right now is Medicare. And, um, and, and that's, you know, I think really revealed by the fact that there isn't much partisan division over Medicare among Americans. Mm. It is overwhelmingly popular, um, even among those who, um, you know, are very very conservative and, and strong supporters of the Republican Party, um, as well as among those who are on the left and supporters of the Democratic Party. So the difficult questions arise, as I said, about how we get there. And, and I just should say that right now we're having a debate essentially about whether we roll back the clock 
uh, on the Affordable Care Act, which, you know, I, I supported, but understand has a, a lot of problems as well. And I just think instead of rolling back the clock, um, because that would be t- catastrophic for the millions of Americans who've gotten coverage and would really set us back at least a generation in moving towards a better solution, we really should be um, looking forward and, um, and really building on and improving uh, the um, the system that we have and have created over the last um, over the last century, and that means is supporting employment-based health insurance, the coverage that the majority of Americans have today, um, as well as um, making sure that there's a good, strong um, net to catch people if they don't have employment-based coverage, and the best net we have, I think, is one that is modeled after Medicare. And that's that's all that the public option is. It's basically saying you have employment-based coverage or uh, you have access to this new um, Medicare-like, uh, national, simple, uh, relatively affordable plan. What about, uh, and take on some of these issues and, and just explain uh, generally why these may not be great arguments. What about those that okay. complain that this is unfair competition? So now the government's going to go in and be able to unfair, in an unfair way, compete against other people in the marketplace. Well, so first of all, no one's saying that we should get rid of Medicare, that it's somehow unfair competition. In fact, Medicare has its own competitive system within it, right? If you don't want the traditional Medicare program, you can choose private plans. And that kind of competition actually seems to work pretty well. Currently, the competition uh, that we have in much of the market takes the form of figuring out, if you're an insurer, ways in which to keep the premium low enough that you'll want to sign up, but then figure out ways to make it really hard for you to get the care you need, either by limiting your network or putting all these high copays and deductibles on your care. So to me, that's, that we have to say that the, the healthcare market is uh, different, um, and it, it's different in part because it's very hard for us to shop around, and therefore we need to treat it a little differently, and we need competition, but the competition we should have should be competition among high-quality health plans, and the public option doesn't have any unfair advantages in such competition. It's, uh, we're not, I'm not saying that the public option should be underpriced. It should be basically uh, charging people premium based on the cost of delivering medical care to people covered. Hmm. I'm not saying that the public option should be, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, marketed differently than the private plans. Um, You know, if you go into the exchange, you see the public option, you see the the choices you have in that area for private plans. I did say, and I I think this is important, but as I said, we could figure out alternatives. I did say that if people don't choose a plan, they should probably be enrolled in the public option because it's the broadest coverage, it's the simplest. But but I'm totally open to other ways of doing it. I just think it's a little bit weird to sort of randomly assign yeah. someone a private plan that they've never looked at, whereas the public option would be simple. Would and, it, and that, that would oh go ahead. That, no, I'm just going to say that's that's the degree to which I think that there is competition. Um, But I just want to be clear, I don't think competition is the be-all, end-all in the system. I think for a lot of Americans, what's most important is simplicity and financial protection and making sure you have access to the doctors and hospitals you you want to uh, go to. 
And especially in you know middle America where it's hard to get competition maybe anyway, there's reasons. Yeah. Insurance companies are backing out. So you have to have yeah. some option there, and it is the role of government, it seems like, to create some of those options if there are no other options. Competition of the system, a lot of the country today. And so the pub- – the public option would actually increase competition in most of the country where there's only one or two insurance plans. Hmm. So anybody that's arguing it's about competition then should should maybe enjoy this. I guess one other thing that we've only got about a minute to cover is okay. – um, and I mean this is – it seems impossible, but it, it always seems like to me when government tells us this isn't going to cost us much, um, it ends up costing us more. And everyone's afraid of Medicare expansion, I guess. And this is part of that idea that Medicare is just going to get so out of hand with promises of lower costs. But in reality, it's just a subtle hidden cost that eventually we all pay. Well, it is it is very much a real cost we pay. It's just a cost that we're willing to pay. So far, we've said Medicare is a, a program that we believe works well enough that, we're, that we support it with our tax dollars. Look, this doesn't get rid of the issue that we have to figure out how to control costs better in the future. My point is that we'll be in a better position to do that if everyone's covered, um, if everyone has access to a good um, uh, plan, including if they're not eligible for Medicaid or don't have employment-based health insurance, a Medicare-like plan. And we'll we'll grapple with this uh, important question of how to control costs in a way that's a lot better than we are now, where we don't have insurance companies in a lot of the country that are providing coverage to people who are in the exchanges, and where a lot of the cost control takes the form of figuring out ways uh, to, to hide costs or deny care or deny coverage um, to people who need it. Hmm. Now, great insight. Jacob S. Hacker, uh, we appreciate your, your insight into that, this again. The father of the public option. Folks, it, it's an option. And it's an option that I think needs to be at least discussed and and brought in. I love the line that everyone needs to have a heavy on your side. And until you're in the healthcare system anyway and you don't have a heavy on your side, um, you probably don't know how bad you need it. So we appreciate uh, Jacob S. Hacker's work there um, at uh, as a professor of political science at Yale University. Great insight. Uh, great brain. And again, it doesn't mean it's the only option, but um, a lot of times we just need to let these ideas in instead of just immediately demonizing them or the people that bring them. Interesting insights. We'll take a break, my friends. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends. Again, healthcare option is one option uh, of uh, the public option is one option. But again, think about the people in the middle of the country that don't have any options. And all the insurance companies, Aetna, all these companies are pulling out. So there won't be competition there. There's nothing there. Um, somebody needs to step up and, and be there for that. Now, if, if not, you could just um, give up healthcare altogether and start doing the bizarre knife massages that are going at a hardcore spa in China. You won't believe this. The owner of Ancient Art of Knife Therapy in Taipei, Taiwan, has been performing a strange p- procedure for more than 13 years. Uh, it's about 30 pounds is what it costs to, to have the treatment. It originated in China about 2,500 years ago, and it involves knives. 
yes, knife therapy, they're calling it, where uh, they they put covers on your body and then they take cleavers and other knives, kitchen knives, certain knives, and they start like cutting on you, but without cutting your skin, but they, they do the motions of cutting on you. And uh, it's pretty crazy to watch. So we're going to post the video on our uh, on our Twitter feed at Dr. Matt show so you can see what's going on there. And if you thought that was weird, the weirdest part is when the masseuse starts to belch um, and the belching is the masseuse's way of apparently spitting out bad energy that they're drawing from you, the client. So, OK, that's that. Just know there's other healthcare options. Uh, knife therapy is one of them. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you realize uh, how good you may have it and uh, how to make it even better. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt, fresh back from surgery and four knife wounds inflicted upon me by my surgeon. Just tiny little itty-bitty stab wounds. Not to get graphic. But I'm doing great. Uh, And I've made it through an hour of the show. That was the real test. The hardest part, really, is the stamina that you need. I had no idea. It's stamina that I lost. Because you're, you're, you're speaking for three hours a day is it's pretty difficult. I mean, you all know that normally I just then go to my office and ignore everybody. It's really what drove you to drink all that Diet Coke. It did. Totally. Drove you to the drink. It drove, drove me to the drink. Happy Sunglasses Day. Although the origins of sunglasses are unknown, the history of sunglasses stretches as far back as 14th century China, where judges used eyewear made of smoke-colored quartz to mask their emotions. I love wearing sunglasses for that very reason. Nobody knows what you're thinking. And then what's weird, if you wear if you wear earbuds and sunglasses, you're in a whole different world. Actually, not only will people not know what you're thinking, but they can't see you at all. No, you can't see them. No, no, no. They can't see you. Once those shades go on, they can't, they see, can't see you at all. No. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. I thought, yeah. Interesting. My my kids had the same belief up to about the age of six. Hmm. Well, not six. Probably younger than that. Four. Well, then they lost the magic. Mm-hmm. They lost the magic. So much to talk about today. Um, Sunglasses Day we'll be celebrating. Also, uh, craziest reasons for why you'd rob a bank. One reason was to avoid a man wanted to avoid his wife. Like, do not make me go back there. Um, A dog picked up by a tornado. Pretty cool story of the survivability of, you know, the just the intense. You 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 when you're thrown in a tornado, like eleven hundred was it yards or feet? That um, you're you're lucky to be alive. One thousand feet. Well, and you mentioned he got picked up too. And dogs, you know, they can't dial an Uber. No. So they have to get around some other way. <laughs> they have to get a ride some way. Jumped right into that uh, vortex. Uh, we'll talk about that. Plus, uh, we're, we're going to talk about a slow 
speed chase, a low speed chase, kind of a la OJ. And uh, we're going to do what, but slower, even even slower than the OJ uh, chase. But we're we're going to do a little uh, kind of a psychology test of giving the benefit of the doubt. We're going to we're going to instead of just assuming the person was just you know a felon running at a very low speed. We're we're going to see if we can't find reasons why he was just trying to be different. Well, we see these stories put in front of us that have, what, five or six sentences to them. We don't have the whole story. We don't know the whole story. So we always make it up, but we tend to make it up negative like all these people are horrible. But what if the person was just a really good guy that borrowed a truck? Yeah. His his motivations could have been very noble. Yeah. So we'll get to that uh, great story in a bit. But – Plus, today we're going to be talking about popularity and uh, what really – what's the benefit of being popular? Are there any benefits to being popular? Of course, the swag is great. All the free gifts you get you know, when you're super popular and you walk in to a place. I, I once got free – I got my drugs paid for once at a pharmacy because they recognized me. Really? Yeah. The super, not my drug, my copay basically. Hmm. It, was it was nice of them. I don't know if it's legal, but I just said it. So there you have it. Um, but there are other benefits like you may live longer if you're popular. What? I know. Popular people live longer, which is weird. You would think with all the extra attention they're getting, it would wear it on would them. It would wear them down because many movie stars don't live very long and they're very popular. That might have something to do with lifestyle choices, yeah. but you know. Yeah, so popular people with certain lifestyle choices may live longer too. We'll get to that fun study uh, and research straight ahead. But first, to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on that we need to be paying attention to? The state of Illinois' budget crisis has become so dire that the state is in danger of entering a financial death spiral as a prominent Ooh. ratings agency threatens to downgrade the state's credit score to junk status. Doing so would increase the cost of borrowing, worsen the deficit and making it even harder for taxpayers to dig out of the hole. S&P Global Ratings has warned the agency will likely lower Illinois' credit rating below investment grade if feuding lawmakers fail to agree on a state budget for a third straight year. Lawmakers are now in a special session in an effort to break the budget impasse prodded by Republican Governor Bruce Rauner, who has referred to his state as a banana republic. The state currently <laughs> wow. faces $130 billion in unfunded pension obligations and a backlog of unpaid bills worth $15 billion. A downgrade to junk status would increase the cost of borrowing for critical infrastructure or refinance existing debt. There's $15 billion in debt. Oh, boy, Illinois. Come the on, banana Miller. republic of Illinois. Two people in New Mexico, Santa Fe County, have contracted the human plague, health officials confirmed Monday. Earlier this month, another New Mexico man was also diagnosed with the plague. The two latest victims are a 52-year-old woman and a 62-year-old woman. All three are receiving treatment in the hospital. So the story about that is the plague. The plague is back. Well, the plague exists like out in the wild and animals. Yeah. And then you come in contact with the animal, and that's how a human gets the plague. Well, we'll and then, talk about I think I found the animal. <laughs> you found the animal. All right. Oh, boy. On July 7th, the state of California will add uh, glyphosate oh, yeah. to the main, ingredient, the main ingredient in Roundup Weed Killer to its list of chemicals known to cause cancer. But the maker of the product, Monsanto, is vowing to fight it out in court with a... When a chemical is listed as being known as a carcinogen, companies selling the product in California must add warning labels to their packaging. Monsanto has filed an appeal saying the chemical doesn't cause cancer and labels would harm business. 
This is not the final step in the process, Monsanto Vice President of Global Strategy says. And we will continue to aggressively challenge this improper decision. The chemical is sprayed on 250 types of crops in California and has no color or smell. It's not It's not a carcinogen. I mean, so then they have to market it cancer like light. Cancer light. Yeah. Alternative facts. Yeah. Boy. This has been brewing for a long, long time. You know time. what they ought to do? Here's the ultimate test. Bring in the board, Monsanto's board. Yeah. Give them a sandwich and spray a gentle dose of glucosophate or uh, whatever. Roundup, yeah. Roundup on it and just see who's jumping in. <laughs> Who wants the first bite? I'll eat that. No, you won't. Okay. So we'll see where, where that goes. And finally, we knew the Washington Nationals bullpen was bad. I didn't know if you knew this. But I did the Washington not know. Nationals, they have a really they have a, a good record. Yeah. They're, they're in all, first place their in their team's division. Doing well, but they have no relief pitching. Uh, Whenever they have to go to their relief picture, they go to the bullpen, they lose. That's not good. They lose leads and they go. Yeah. So, uh, but we figured out the damage. Uh, not necess- the damage is not necessarily limiting to the games. Apparently, uh, one national fan grew so frustrated with the team's relievers that he made sure to take shots at them in his obituary. 68-year-old Nationals fan named Patrick Killebrew oh. died peacefully June 20th, quote, after watching the Washington Nationals relief pitchers blow yet another lead. <laughs> That's how his obituary reads in the uh, he, he Richmond Times Dispatch. He didn't die in the loving arms of his family. He died after watching the Nationals relief pitcher blow another lead. Uh, th- this article says it checks out also the Nationals lost their June 19th game against the Miami Marlins in a walk-off single after giving up the lead. And then on the 20th, the obituary comes out that he died. And at the end of the obituary, it's just a short little paragraph. Yeah. At the end, it says, in lieu of, do- of uh, flowers, yeah. please send donations to the National Relief Pitcher Fund <laughs> so they can actually afford someone that's of some oh. skill. You know, it could be worse. We talked yesterday uh, to Spencer and Jerem about how uh, in the Dodger game, the Rockies pitcher gave up five runs on four wild pitches. Wow. The Dodgers were behind. He's got one job. He's got Just one job. Throw the ball to the catcher. But but that's got to be the worst job in baseball. Catcher? No, relief pitcher. Oh. Really? Don't you think? You come in know. for one inning? Well, yeah, no, but yeah. it's Maybe always, every night? The maybe only every other, other night? But it's every night. Your job is to secure the win. Only if your team has the lead, you know. Yeah. Yeah. That's seriously like. But there's you throw ten pitches. Well, yeah, that's great. If you're what was Ramirez? Was that the guy? uh, Who was the Who was the Yankees reliever that was incredible? Oh right. Oh, he was so good. Yeah, I forgot his name now. Yeah, we got to find his. Was he the closer? Uh huh. Well, there's closers and there's relievers. No, he's the, he was the closer that they would bring in at the end of every game, and it was like, boink, 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 right. three up, three down, done. Yeah. Every time. But his job was to come in and throw three pitches. Yeah. Whereas uh, the middle relief comes in, and he may have an inning or two. I mean, it's easy. To... I'm not saying it's it's easy money, sure, but it's like a field goal kicker where you're you're dead either way. Huh. You're either the loser kicker that nobody oh, respects, yeah, 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 yeah. or, because you hardly play, or you're the king of the world. And he's the guy that always gets to throw that last pitch. Everybody cheers. But at the same time, you're also kind of like, are you a starter? Well, no. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you can't really win. But Believers are basic are routinely failed starters. But and but they're all, yeah <laughs> they're good for they're good for an inning. What are you good for? I'm good for an inning. <laughs> I'm good for one. Here's inning ten every million other, dollars. Every other night. So in essence, your job is don't mess it up. Yeah. 
There's no... It's a lot of pressure. Yeah. Uh, okay, here's a question for you. I'm going to give you three words, mm. and I want you... This is a little psychology for you. I Three words, I want you to give me the first name that comes to your mind. Okay? Okay. Three words. Or the first thought that comes to your mind. Ooh. This is a description It might be the second. We'll it's, have to see if dis- I have to yeah, self-censor. You might Go have ahead. to self-censor. The words are drooling, snoring, and gassy. Producer of the Matt Townsend show? <laughs> okay. That was my that Sometimes was my, they're that was sleeping my, out there at their desks. Yeah. yeah. How about you, Jeffrey? What was the first one again? Drooling. Snoring, snoring and gassy. I thought of drooling dog, snoring dad. Wow. And uh, gassy. For some reason, I thought of a sandwich. Oh, that's very telling. Hmm. Of you. Huh. What are you uh, eating? This, um, <laughs> this is, that is the headline for the world's ugliest dog. Yeah. Drooling, snoring, and gassy. What was his name? Martha. Oh, her. Martha the Mastiff. <laughs> wow. She wins the ugliest dog contest. And honestly, she's pretty ugly, not to be rude. But I thought there, the gremlins looked more attractive there are uglier, than that dog. There are uglier dogs. Here, oh boy, there are uglier dogs. And it's, there's, let me just tell you, there's nothing worse than a chihuahua when they go bad. Like when a chihuahua has reached its expiration date. But it's still alive. It just it just comes unglued. It shows you though that every creature needs somebody to love it. The twenty right? yeah the twenty exactly the twenty sixteen world's ugliest dog was named Sweepy Rambo, a hairless wonder from Van Nuys that looked kind of like a Chihuahua. Just I don't know. It looks after a it major, looks like. If Dr. Frankenstein were to bring back to life a gremlin from the movie Gremlins, mm-hmm. that's probably what it would look like. Yeah. This gassy one, uh, the 125-pound Mastiff, drooling, snorry, gassy, loud, and silly girl uh, named Martha, she won the deal. 1500 bucks. she won, a five-foot-tall trophy, uh, and is now known as the homeliest misfit of the year. Hopefully she'll spend that money on... On a, a makeover. <laughs> the funny thing about the makeover is where do you begin? You know, this because Mastiffs have a lot of flappy skin. Does she have white hair? Was that white hair? No, the Mastiff, it's kind of a brown, but with huge jowls and droopy eyes. And she needs an eye lift. Well, that's a different dog no, than that, the one that, you no, showed that, yeah, me. This is the winner. Oh, that, the see, one that I dog's you, not so ugly. No, the, the other one was the one last year's winner, the rat on a stick. That one's not so ugly. <laughs> right on a stick. That's yeah. fine. No, well, this one, it's pretty ugly. It's just... No, I've seen worse. Mm. Well, tell, like that the... to, tell that to Martha. She's the <laughs> ugliest. They just, they made it, it's official. Um, oh, happy sunglasses day. Uh, we're, we're, boy, we're going to have to, how, we don't have time for all this fun. In fact, well, let's try something. Let's. Let's do talk about the slow uh, speed chase. O.J. Simpson made famous a slow speed chase um, while trying to evade uh, police. An Alabama, Alabama man is behind bars after leading sheriff's deputies on a slow speed chase in a stolen delivery truck on Wednesday. It all began after 4.30 a.m. when deputies responded to investigate a report of suspicious vehicles sitting in the road with its lights on and no one around. While checking the car, a citizen informed them that a man had just stolen a Kenworth T300 flatbed delivery truck nearby. 
and the deputies then spotted the truck as it turned on the highway and attempted to stop the vehicle. The driver, later identified as 29-year-old Randy Dwayne Vert, refused to stop and continued driving south. Vert was apparently unfamiliar with the complexities of the modern manual transmission and uh, drove at about speeds of 25 to 30 miles an hour on I-59. Uh, apparently, he did not know how to shift into second gear. Hmm. It's it, that confangled instrument. He you couldn't know, do it. There could be another explanation, though. Well, there is. Have you ever seen the film Speed? Yeah. If their speed exceeded 55 yeah, miles per it. hour, then the, the bomb would go off. So maybe he was given a note that said, don't go above 30 miles per hour or your car will explode. Yeah. So maybe maybe that's why he didn't go above 30. Yeah. Maybe he's just very speed conscious and conscientious because he wants to make sure that the children on their way to school are safe. Yeah. And, you know, it also begs the question, well, why didn't he stop when the police told him to? Yeah. You know, have you ever driven in a Kentworth T300 flatbed delivery truck? Not not recently. What if this was his lifelong ambition to drive one? Well, yeah. Do you stop? What if he's dying of cancer and this was his last chance to drive a Kenworth T300 flatbed? I wouldn't ask you to stop chasing your dreams. No. That's selfish. If I had a dream, that would be great. Why did he steal it? He didn't steal it. He, He borrowed it to fulfill a dream, and he was going to go pick up a load of lumber... For a neighbor. I think he was delivering uh, a kidney to somebody that really needed it. The kidneys aren't that big, but... Well, you can, you know, he had plenty of space on the flatbed truck. Like a a plat of, I don't know. Um, uh, Maybe he was, maybe he's in his local congregation. He's in charge of the moves and he was moving a family or two out. Yeah. To serve. And, you know, some people might even think that this was a different person than the man who left his car abandoned on the road. Maybe that yeah. man who was driving that car, uh, maybe the rapture happened. Maybe there, yeah, maybe the rapture came. And maybe he, the guy that was driving the first car, didn't know how to drive a stick shift and burnt out that motor, that transmission, and then got in the T300, the Kenworth T300 flatbed, and burned out that transmission. And maybe he was just waiting to, to for the burnout before he would then exit the vehicle and then enjoy the rapture. See, there's so much information we're not given. Sure. These are all very, very likely uh, bits of information that we're probably missing from the story. Don't be a negative thinker. It's too easy to judge a criminal quickly. In fact, instead, slow down. Judge them slowly. <laughs> slow speed chase. Just... Try to give people the benefit of the doubt, even if they are in a slow speed chase. That's what we're trying to bring you, the joy of living on this crazy thing we call Earth. We'll be back, folks, coming back, talking about popular and the power of being likable. Stick with us. Popular. You're going to be popular. I'll teach you the proper poise when you talk to boys. Little ways to flirt and glance. I'll show you what shoes to wear. Popularity is a word that can bring to life memories of our teenage years, can't it? Mostly it involves feelings of insecurity, stress, and the desire to be liked, whether you were popular or not. 
Thankfully, we can say that those years are behind us, right? And thank goodness we don't have to deal with popularity anymore. Well, social psychologists would argue that isn't quite true. In his new book, Popular, The Power of Likeability in a Status-Obsessed World, Dr. Mitch Princeton uh, addresses some of the misconceptions we all have about popularity. Dr. Princeton, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. What a what a I think a fascinating topic because we've all probably experienced it seems like a universal experience in life when we run up into that our fear of not being likable or not being popular. So define for us popularity and and why is why is it that we're so obsessed with it today? Sure. Uh yeah, it's a scary idea, right, to think that popularity is still all around us, but it it is. It's not exactly the same way, of course, that we experienced in high school. But yeah, we still really give a lot of attention to those kinds of things today in two different ways. Um, Popularity comes in the form of likability, which is the extent to which we enjoy spending time with people. We uh, think highly of them. We trust them. We tell them about our lives. And that's separate from a different kind of popularity That's referred to as status. And status is really who's the most visible, who's the most powerful, influential, famous. That's a very different kind of popularity because, in fact, those who have really high status, just like back in high school, sometimes we might not like them very much at all. Hmm. So it's interesting. This – and you can almost – you can hear kind of the – I guess evolutionary psychology roots of this that you would need – to be likable in order to stay in the group, you would want status in order to make sure you get a good, you know, portion of the foods and the survival abilities. Um, so is it is it kind of just our nature to want to be likable and have status? Yeah, it's really amazing how much this is a part of our nature because we now know from research in neuroscience that there's a part of our brain that activates at the very moment even as adults, that we think that we might be excluded. It seems to suggest that our bodies were preparing us to be protected if we were going to lose the company and and the support of those around us. The part of our brain that seems to be activated is the same one that gets activated when we experience physical pain. Not, Not the part that makes us say, ouch, but the part that tells us, you know, this is a warning and an alarm and a something we need to avoid immediately. It's like our brain is telling us to get back in the herd as quickly as possible to maintain that protection. Hmm. So we really, there, there's a chemical side to this that keeps driving us and, and making us want to be popular. Are there, are there some people that just don't have any of that in them? They just flat out don't care. Yeah, there are. I mean, there are some people who, even if they're biologically responding to feeling excluded, they, they're not so interested. They don't think it's that important to make sure that they're really well-liked. And that's okay, but what's really interesting is that we're now living in a world where it's becoming harder and harder to really be on your own in that way. I mean, people who are likable are given the benefit of the doubt and given opportunities all the time. It's who gets promotions, it's how we raise our kids. All of these things are influenced by popularity in ways that we don't talk about, but but they're really very powerful. It's one of the most 
powerful predictors of many of our long-term life outcomes. Wow. Give us some more uh, information of of how likability – so popularity, you're you're basically saying, is one of two things. It's likability – but it's also and it's also status. Likeability um, means, I guess, people are drawn to you. And it's ironic to me, I guess, that we use the word like uh, in social media so much. <laughs> um, but and so talk to me about what are the other benefits to us day in, day out of just being likable? Well, it's amazing. You know, we did a um, a study when we were looking at that and we asked people to wear for one day a a really kind of crazy t-shirt on campus uh, just to see what would happen. And we knew that what would happen is that uh, people would treat them a little bit differently and kind of smile and ask them about it. And we made them pretty likable for a day. What was surprising was that folks realized how much it brought out of them a completely different side of them. They were more confident. They were more willing to interact with others. They felt more secure. And it changed the entire nature of their interactions over the course of the day in ways that they told us, if this is how they were treated every single day, they would have grown up to become a completely different human than they are now. And that's what the research says. When we are likable, people treat us in ways that give us new experiences to learn, new opportunities to get involved in things that we otherwise would have been shut out of. And that's why it has such a powerful and enduring effect. Unbelievable. And you can see that. It's so strange. I remember being in a private school. This was 30 years ago, probably 40 years ago. And um, being friends with the most popular guy in the school and of all and there was there was only 30 desks in the room but he for some reason got the really cool desk there was one <laughs> odd really but everyone wanted that desk but the most popular kid got that desk and i'm like wow what's it like but you're saying if the if you are seen as likable and you are then then people treat you different because you're likable you're popular that actually changes who you end up becoming. That ends up changing the experiences you have, what you're willing to say or not say, and how you evolve, how you grow yourself. Absolutely. You know, in the book, I talk about the story of two guys that go to law school, and one of them is far more qualified and prepared than the other, but he ends up failing. And the reason why is because his contemporary is a really likable guy. So he gets invited to study groups. He gets asked to, uh, he chats with the teacher afterwards and learns extra material. He gets opportunities for internships that the other one does not get. He goes on, the likable guy goes on to have a remarkably successful career, not because he was more qualified and not because he was better prepared, but because he created an environment that left all doors open for him. While the more prepared guy, who is kind of more aloof, a little bit of a hermit, He really closed all those doors, and at every opportunity to learn or to get new experiences, he lost out. And what it had to do with was plain old likability. Now, to me, this resonates almost with the research in emotional intelligence in a way. Um, would Would you then say, if I were a parent, would it be better for me to teach my kids the skills of being likable or the skills of being prepared? Oh, if I, if great, I was going to dichotomize it. Yeah, what a great question. You know, I would say that um, it's, of course, really important for kids to be prepared and take their work seriously. 
but I think it would be a mistake to ignore likability. And one of the things I think is important is to recognize all the different ways that parents really play a role in developing their child's likability. Research says that even after controlling for a child's IQ, for their socioeconomic status, for their history of stress and mental health problems and their parents' stress and mental health problems, the one factor that predicts above and beyond all of those other factors is their child's level of likability. It predicts their relationships, their work success, even their physical health for decades later. Unbelievable. Because in a way, it, it seems it's 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 almost like against the work ethic, Mitch. You're 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 blowing up the because now it's like your personality could get you somewhere instead of just your your integrity or your hard work ethic. But in reality, you live in a social world, right? So this shouldn't be surprising. I mean, I think it's both. You know, I think we have to be prepared when we show yeah. up. To, to the table, we have to have something to bring there that's competent and appropriate. But I think if we believe that we left all those popularity dynamics back in high school, we're missing out on a very real factor. And that is that no matter where you work or no matter what interactions you're involved in, we're still humans. And yeah. as humans, we are still drawn to each other in a social way that is, that is part of the fabric of who we are. There's research now that says that even our DNA changes how it's expressed based on the most recent experience you had of being treated likably or as a disliked person. This what? is part That's, of who yeah. we are. How, how, how does it express differently? So the minute that we are um, treated in a dislikable way, our DNA expects that we might get eaten by a woolly yeah, mammoth. More of it, yeah. So, you know, it activates an inflammation response in our body to protect us from bacterial infection and, and wounds. It simultaneously shuts off the parts of our DNA that would help us resist viruses because our body assumes if we're not going to be around anyone else for a while, who are we going to catch a virus from? So there's now this really powerful relationship between our social experiences and our physical health because of course, we don't have any threats from woolly mammoths now, so our body is responding in a way that actually harms us rather than helping us. Mm. And you can see it. I could just see I had some of my children run for like class officers and um, boy, the impact it has on their psyche, on their on their willingness to try things, to put stuff out there, it changes them when they think they're liked. Absolutely. I mean, and this is so important for adolescents. Just look at social media and look how much adolescents care about their peers. There's a reason for that. There's something about the ways that our brains develop right around the age of 11 or 12 that turns on a, a pleasure center within our brains and makes it really tuned in to our social experiences. That's why everyone thinks their parents become totally lame when they become 11 years old. Yeah. They suddenly want to hang out with their peers because our body and our brains are developing in ways that make us really, really care about popularity. And it used to be that we lived in a world where we would kind of go back to being concerned about our likability when we became adults. But the world has changed, and now we're kind of perpetually in a, a mouse-clicking high school where everyone's trying to be really popular online and 
and this was a really interesting time when it comes to popularity. It's um, I have a client that comes to me, and it's her ultimate objective in life is to be famous. And mm-hmm. and I sit there and I think, okay, so what will you do with your fame? And then it's well, I would just share me, and I'd share my art, and I'd share my talents and my gifts, and I would try to enrich the world. And I'm like, well, wouldn't it make more sense that instead of like focusing on fame, that we focus on sharing you already and your gifts and your talents and enriching the lives of everyone around you? Because and we could do that today, and you don't need to be a Kardashian to do that. <laughs> so, so you're telling me that's that desire for fame or kind of notoriety that would be more status, I guess, popularity. That's that's just kind of human nature. Absolutely. You know, but it's important because the research says, just as you're pointing out, that those who have high status actually are at greater risk for relationship problems, addictions, anxiety, and depression. And the celebrities and other high status folks uh, interviews within the book kind of really clearly articulate why it is that having that high status actually leads to all those problems, because those folks end up reporting that they're very unhappy. They feel more socially disconnected, and what they want more than anything is just for someone to really know them and like them. Hmm. So really, if we have to push for status or likability, really likability is is the healthier healthier avenue. Absolutely. There's never been anything wrong with community and connection and caring for others, but fame and, and having lots of visibility and power the research suggests that that leads to problems. Mm-hmm. No, and I, you can totally see it just play out in Hollywood and other places. Um, let's do this, Mitch. Let's take a break, come back, and continue this journey into popularity, the power of likability, uh, and learn what we can. We'll come back, get some more ideas for what, what this means going forward as adults and our own popularity issues or likability issues at work, at home, at play. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us on the phone is uh, Dr. Uh, Mitch Princeton. He's a father, a board-certified a husband, uh, by the way, a board-certified clinical child and adolescent psychologist, and serves as the Van Cedars Distinguished Professor of Psychology and Neuroscience and the Director of Clinical Psychology at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Uh, Mitch is also the author of the book Popular, The Power of Likeability. Um, no, that, there's a better title than that, Likeability in a Status-Obsessed World. Uh, Mitch, we appreciate you. Thanks for being with us today. Sure. Thanks for having me. So um, it's, it's easy, it seems like, in social media to, uh, to want to be popular, to have as many f- people following you as you can, to have a lot of people like what you're saying. But that really doesn't seem like so much the likability you're talking about. No, it's something to be a little bit concerned about when it comes to our kids in particular. It's all fun, of course, and, it's, um, and we all can get sucked into that whole world of trying to get likes and followers. But 
But for our kids, um, you know, they're getting a very clear message from teen magazines, from their friends, that this is the end-all, be-all, right, that, that they need to have followers, that it's somehow an important life goal. And this is a concern. Um, there, are, there are, yeah, teen magazines that are teaching them exactly how to be social media famous and telling them that this will solve all of their adolescent woes. Yeah. There, there are uh, makeup companies that are now marketing selfie makeup to help teens look better in their selfies. This is something I think, you know, we really need to be concerned about as parents um, because I'd hate for kids to think that their life worth can be measured in likes and retweets. Oh, that's so true. And you, you sit there and you think about it that instead we, we should be teaching them how to relate to others, how to make bigger circles that include others. So what what are the skills that that need to be there to produce more likable people? Well, I mean, I think social media is one of those tools, actually. It's just how you use it. Um, you know, I think posting things that you may or may not even believe in or care about just because you think it will get the attention from others, that's a problem. But using social media to truly connect with others or um, send private messages and, and have actual conversations to learn how to share emotionally intimate information in a safe way, um, online or offline, that, that is important. Those are teaching skills that will be very important in every business relationship and every personal partnership. Um, and we should be focusing on helping kids to, you know, learn the old arts of conversation and caring about others and making sure that what they're doing isn't just to promote themselves, but is really helping those they care about. Do do you notice that? Um, I mean, because I guess part of being popular would be it could be anything. It could be the child that can play sports really well, the dancer, uh, the funny kid. It, it's there's a lot of ways to be likable, and and I guess so, which tells us there's probably a way for everyone to pick up their likability. Absolutely, you know. But one of the things that people often uh, misunderstand about likability is that being kind and caring to others um, doesn't mean that you have to be a pushover. In fact, it's just the opposite. The, the people who are most likable, sometimes for the reasons that, that you are articulating, um, they actually are very good at one skill that is a really important skill for business as well as for their personal relationships, and that is the extent to which they're able to move a group by listening, by understanding the group's desires, and helping the group to move itself towards whatever outcome the likable person thinks would be useful. It's, it's not about showing up at a business meeting and dominating and telling everyone that their opinions don't matter. Mm. It's about listening to what everyone else is interested in and helping to guide the group overall towards a better solution. So everyone feels invested and, and aligned together. This is a really important difference that makes likable folks some of our best leaders out there, but it's very different from the kind of leadership that's more focused on being aggressive and you know telling everyone that they're not as important. Um, and I think that those kinds of skills are really important to teach kids and to foster in the development of uh, professionals as well, because 
it's not just about being a nice person. It's about knowing how to work within a group. Hmm. And yeah, and, and, and do so effectively. I noticed um, on the book, uh, Susan Cain, author of the book Quiet, uh, ta- had a quote that basically said, popular will make you rethink every social interaction you've had since high school. And Susan's one that talks a lot about introversion, extroversion. Do, do you notice that, I, I, I mean, again, popular is 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 bigger than introversion extroversion you can be you can um be likable whether you're an introvert or an extrovert whether you're really scientific thinking or whatever you you need these skills regardless absolutely people sometimes think that being popular means you have to be extroverted and yeah actually some of the most likable people are introverts um for the same reasons they they're very good at listening and being really thoughtful about how they contribute socially so this is this is something that is different and that everyone could really achieve better likability sometimes through even the tiniest little changes that they might make um researchers found that can have remarkably big effects you you talk about the fact that being popular maybe as a teenager does, in fact, impact how you see life, how you go about taking on the challenges of life. What would what happens to those that feel like they were never popular, that never had that kind of boost of self-esteem, that never had that caught through all caution to the wind because of their confidence? Is there a way to get that as an adult? Absolutely. In fact, I think it's really important that, that people know and realize that those old memories don't have to kind of plague us, you know, to, to feel insecure forever. The key is to understand how they're affecting us today. So research says that a couple of different ways that this affects us, but one of them is that those prior memories are stored within our brains and they are being used to make us uh, think differently about the situations we're encountering today in ways that are beyond even our conscious awareness. There was a research study that showed a video of a social interaction to different folks, some of whom had been popular in the past and some not. And what they found was that they actually saw different things in the video. They had them wear eye trackers, and they saw that those who were less popular spent more time looking at all of the negative social cues in that video. Hmm. Those who were popular looked at all the positive interactions in the video. So, of course, later on when they were asked to tell a little bit about what they saw in the video and interpret it, they had literally seen the world in completely different ways. This is easily overcome just by realizing that you're doing it and reorienting, but some people don't think that those prior experiences are still affecting them. They kind of brush them under the rug, not realizing that it's created this filter or this bias that's affecting them every day. Boy, and every kid, I mean, it makes your heart ache to think that uh, somebody could think that they're not liked. Um, And then to know that not being liked as a 14-year-old impacts how they feel about life and see life positively or negatively as an 18-year-old, as a 25-year-old, as a 55-year-old. I guess it puts an onus on all of us to to be looking to like people. Absolutely. I mean, and it is it is so hard to imagine a, a child who might be going to school every day and having a, a tough time. And, and yes, especially, as you say, to think about 
their future. There, there are some easy things that could be done, though. There's some really interesting work on social mimicry that says that sometimes the way that we act is contagious. If we walk into a room with our arms folded and we're kind of frowning, other people will also sometimes <laughs> uh, feel sad themselves, and they'll kind of describe you as being low energy or somehow casting a pall on the interaction. And folks don't realize how much what they're putting out there is sometimes reflected by others, almost giving them the impression that their initial suspicions that they would be rejected were, were true, never realizing that they had perhaps been a part of why that happened. So sometimes just walking into a room and being more conscious about how this is a new opportunity and we don't have to feel like we're 14 anymore can make all the difference and have a, a remarkable cascade effect. And and we've had um, uh, we've talked about body language, you know, Superman poses, all these other psychology driven ideas too that open us up, bring more chemistry or different chemistry to us, confidence to us. I mean, I guess this is about awareness, isn't it? It is. It's awareness of what we're doing socially, but it's also recognizing that even though popularity feels like it's ancient history it's still something that's relevant. It's still something we need to think about our adolescence and recognize, yeah, it's probably still affecting us. Um, and we shouldn't just pretend that it's so long ago and we're not those people anymore. No, it's true, huh? And it's, and, and this is, it's real. It's, it's, this isn't a fluke. This is, this is who we are. Um, I guess as we wrap up, we have about a minute or so. What would you say is is the one thing, I mean, other than grabbing the book, Popular, The Power of Likeability in a Status-Obsessed World, what what else could we do to to improve our likability, our ability to connect to others um, as both parents and just adults? Well, I would say let's focus a little bit less on the world we've now created about needing to seem famous and visible and powerful. And let's go back to caring about each other and really making connections. Research says the more that we are digitally connected to one another, the more we feel lonely and isolated. Mm. So it might be time to pick up the phone, believe it or not, or go have a conversation because we are social creatures built to be happier when we do that. Beautiful. Mitch Princeton is his name, author of the book Popular, The Power of Likeability in a Status-Obsessed World. Uh, You can also find out more at his website, MitchPrinstein.com. Great resource for life, folks, Um, and for a better life, I think, for all of us. Let's go make everyone around us feel like they're liked. How powerful could that be in this world? We'll take a break, come back, wrap up hour number two of the program. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. And I realize that everything The MT News Team, first on the scene, fifth on facts. <laughs> Crunch. Welcome back, folks. Uh, first on the scene, fifth on the facts. What more do you want? Uh, in fact, uh, here's some news out of Kansas. A husband who robbed a bank to avoid his wife who was given to home confinement. Listen to this. A 70-year-old man said he robbed a Kansas City, Kansas bank so he could get away from his wife, blamed his actions on his depression. Federal judge on Tuesday sentenced Lawrence John Ripple to six months of home confinement and 50 hours of community service. Ripple went to the Bank of Labor 
a block from the police headquarters last September. He gave a note to a teller saying that he had a gun and was demanding money. After he was given the money, Ripple waited for police. Court records indicate Ripple wrote the robbery note in front of his wife and told her he would rather be in jail than at home. Ripple told the judge Tuesday that the heart surgery left him depressed and unlike himself before he robbed the bank. And of all sentences to give, it was home confinement. It might as well be jail. Love. We just learned about the importance of likability and, uh, (laughs) boy, poor guy suffering depression there. And this is a heroic story of a dog that picked up by a tornado in Davie County, survives and is recovering Davie, North Carolina. The dog was picked up, thrown across the road in a tornado. And, uh, by the way, a thousand feet the dog was thrown. And uh, unbelievable. A 12-year-old Australian shepherd survived the, the crazy journey. When I got to him, he was across the road in the pasture, Vinoy said. He could hardly walk. He was in severe pain with his lethargic, and he was lethargic. He was crying, and he had uh, broken his leg in multiple places, and his retina had been damaged as well. So the dog has gone through multiple surgeries, spent a lot of time at the vet, but now he's going to make a full recovery. This wasn't Martha, was it? No. Martha the Mastiff? Yeah. You mean the the gassy Mastiff? Maybe the tornado is how she got so ugly. No. She's just ugly. Uh, We're not being rude about Martha. She's just the winner of the ugliest dog contest. And I took a a look at the picture and didn't think that she looked that ugly. You thought she looked great. After last year's winner, she looks like a million bucks. (laughs) The year before, that was an ugly dog. (laughs) Poor dogs. Well, I'm glad this one survived. Congrats to them and their family. Uh, That's hour number two of the program, folks. See, life is good. Nothing to worry about. We'll take a break. We'll be back. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you. Hope you're having a great day so far as you make your commute or just uh, make your day Worthwhile, that is the goal of the show, to bring you the latest, the greatest information, research, just ideas to help you lift your life to the next level. You know, we've been lifting all day. And today, in fact, in hour number two of the program, we're going to talk about why you need to lift more. You need to lift weights, Terry. Okay, I'll start. And you need to lift where you stand, too. Okay. It per, it, I won't say who said that. <laughs> there, there, there is many lifts great. you do while standing, so that is sort of irrelevant. That, and comment. the amazing benefits of weightlifting and just not even heavy weightlifting. In fact, it'll blow your mind. The most important key to weightlifting is what? Is it how much? Is it the lifting reps? Lifting weights? Lift as much as you can. You lift. Use your back. The key is you when you lift to when you can no longer carry the weight. Yeah. That breaking point is the key. Which is so, a, it's a huge advantage if you are a, an aging senior. It doesn't matter if you're lifting a three pound weight thirty times. 
if you can't lift it 31 times and you go to 31, you have all of the greatest benefits of lifting. If you can only do five lifts of a three-pounder and then you or your, your muscles are exhausted, then you've just benefited fully from weightlifting. Right. Hmm. It's pretty cool. Lift to fatigue. Lift to fatigue is huh. the key to weightlifting, which I had no idea of. We used I, I'm to... going to start doing it. I'm going to start lifting things. <laughs> You're like, I got soup cans. Let's do this. <laughs> That's what we used when we didn't have weights, yeah. My Campbell son soup. went on an LDS mission vacation. It's a religiously, yeah. And it's a two-year um, vacation. But he's getting buffed, and he's, like, getting ripped. He well, went I mean, as a scrawny little piano player, and now he's getting ripped. You hear about the guys that go to prison, they work out, they go on a mission, they work out. It's kind of similar. It's a lot, it's a lot like that. So that's hour number two. I don't know why I jumped right to hour number two, but it just blew my mind. Hour number one, this first hour, we've got a great topic about robots. Mm. We're all so afraid of robots taking over Yes, that it's almost like we're hiding in the bushes saying, la, 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 la. Robots aren't a big deal. But our next guest uh, coming up in a few minutes is going to talk about the fact that we probably ought to be investing deeply in robots Mm. and robotics because otherwise we will not be the leader of the industry. And when you're not the leader, then you will ensure that robots will take over. And you'll be the customer. That's right. Right, buying them somewhere else. It's nice to be one step ahead of the robots, though. That's that's the rule. It's the problem when you build them because we want them to solve problems. But when they realize that we're actually the problem, right. that's the bigger problem. So. And apparently the future of robots, it's not just for automobile manufacturers no. and iPhone manufacturers. Robots eventually will be part of your day-to-day, even your home business. Right. Like if you're a saddle maker, working the leather of the saddle. Oddly specific job. I mean, it's weird. But eventually – and you're just making saddles in your little barn. Making saddles. For all the people in your neighborhood of barns. Right. Then robots eventually will become so affordable you'll want a robot to do the mundane task of hammering out the leather or whatever. Right. Boom. Detailed leather work should be done by a robot. (laughs) You're right. And or any other home business. Yes. Like putting bracelets together. Right. Robots are perfectly created for rob- uh, for bracelet making. Driving cars. Ooh. Since that's where everyone wants it to go. There's such yeah. an effort to make that happen and there's such – I have a story about that too. But we're afraid of it, the deal is. We're afraid. Well, haven't you seen 2001? I, yeah, of course I, we're I lived afraid. the whole year. I mean I was there the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was a great year. Did you not see it? 2001 space uh, colon a space odyssey. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, I don't remember that. I don't remember that. It's a movie. Yeah. I can't remember movies. What if it happens, though? What if? What if? I'm sorry, Matt. I can't let you do that. Uh, that voice bugs. Was that the one? Was 2001 How? The, the, the robot that looked like a human, like a mannequin, but was like no. gray? No. It's just a red dot. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I don't like that That one. controlled all the earlocks. Oh, boy. Yeah. Like, hey, you want to look outside the spaceship? Let's, let's open the door. Which, I mean, I don't yeah, know if you know no, how that works, that, but- wouldn't work well. Yeah. <laughs> They're going to boil the blood. <laughs> uh, I got a lot to do today. We'll get to uh, robotics in a bit, uh, plus some uh, empty news, of course, just because we like to share the things that you didn't even know you needed to know. And um, we'll get to all that fun. Plus, why on earth are is Sean Spicy Spicer, why are we not turning on the cameras? Just turn them on. Just just turn on the cameras in your briefing. Well, it created quite a. As Steve Bannon said, uh, Spicy's put on some weight. Do you oh, remember that text oh, yeah. a couple weeks ago? Holy cow! Ah, 
Glamour shots. Okay, we'll take uh, we'll get to all that fun. But first, let's talk headlines. Terry, what's going on that we need to worry about? A new strain of ransomware called Petya wrecked havoc on havoc on some of the most established companies in Europe and North America on Tuesday, capitalizing on the same vulnerabilities that froze hundreds of thousands of computers a month ago. The New York Times reports that the new attack used the same national. A security agency hacking tool that's called Eternal Blue that was used in the WannaCry episode, as well as two other methods to promote its spread. Computer security company Kapertsky Labs said about 2,000 systems worldwide were affected. The cyber attack appears to target or appeared to target Ukraine, where government officials and businesses reported intrusions to the power grid, government offices, banks, and stores. The cyber attack, which is believed to uh, originated with a software update for a Ukrainian tax accounting system. It spread rapidly around the world Tuesday with victims including India's largest container port, Russia's biggest oil company, a chocolate factory in Tasmania, and a hospital in Pittsburgh. The, the malware encrypted hard drives demanded $300 in Bitcoin, which actually translates in Bitcoin to like $700,000. I'm not sure how that works. But wow. Petya is really preying on organizations without proper patching hygiene of the Windows operating system. By the way, the British government just uh, christened their newest naval warship, the HMS Queen Elizabeth. It appears to be running an outdated version of Windows XP. Just, just thought, toss it out there. <laughs> uh, also new this morning, at least one nuclear power plant in the U.S. has had its computer systems breached in a cyber attack. That's according to ABC wow. News. Federal authorities are investigating the hack which is said to have not compromised any operational systems. The report does not identify which uh, nuclear facility was involved in the breach, and it doesn't say if it has to well, do with this worldwide attack that happened yesterday or I if it's a new thing. Chernobyl did have a problem. It did. So that was, I guess that's not an American one. By the way, didn't Jeff, didn't you have a patching hygiene problem? A patching hygiene? <clears throat> yeah. Well, yeah. I thought you said Apache hygiene. No, yeah, well, you, we, know you, we know you had an Apache hygiene problem. <laughs> Anyway, we'll get to your patching hygiene so, yeah, problem. People, uh, companies don't update their software. They're getting attacked. Boy, and imagine Windows. And the reason Windows XP runs on systems like this ship is when was it first designed? Right. And then all of a sudden the computer systems, that's what they're set with is whatever the software is running at that time, which was a Windows like XP. we need apparently. an XP update. Man. Uh, on Tuesday, five years after hitting a, a billion monthly users, Facebook announced it has now hit two billion monthly users. Holy cow. That makes it the largest social media network in the world. It's now bigger, it has a bigger population, quote unquote, than any country in the world. That's 27% of the world's 7.5 billion people. Nearly one in four people on the planet use Facebook. Unbelievable. It says if Facebook truly wants to connect to the entire world, it's going to need to find a way to reach the 15% of people who live in areas with no internet access, and the many more who can't afford internet access also needs to get itself unblocked in China. Yeah. Then it takes over. Then it's complete world dominance. Then you, yeah, then you've dominated the entire world, the globe. In other news, there are about 5.7 million unfilled jobs in the U.S., many requiring specific skills, but two-thirds of companies complaining about the absence of trained workers, everyone from welders to data engineers, these companies are doing little or nothing about it, according to a new study. In a report earlier this month, the U.S. Business Roundtable, an association of American corporate CEOs, called the Skills Gap a national crisis affecting our national future, one likely to stretch ahead a decade or more. Companies like IBM and J.P. Morgan are running education and training programs, but a study, uh, let's say a study says more than half of the companies it surveyed said that uh, they struggle even to holistically assess added skills they require. 
Oh, boy. Right? So they don't know the skills they need, but they need them. And if they don't have them in the next decade, it's going to cause a huge problem. We we got skills that we need. We just don't know what they are yet. So it says the outlook for progress is bleak. The study says when those in need of skilled workers not only are doing nothing about it, but don't fully understand what ails them. See, this is the problem with the future today. That sounds weird to say. Yeah. Because how do you know what you need when you don't even know what you need? But you're not doing anything yeah. about and we can't like anything. so where do we begin? So Exactly. So instead let's just work on the healthcare bill. And of course that And by the way, that's a perfect example. Out. They don't know what they need. Right. So they don't know where to begin to know what they need. Half the people haven't read the bill. Yeah. Anyway. And finally, in less, in, in less than a week, four people were attacked by bears in Alaska, Boy. with two dying from their injuries. Brown bears are more likely to attack, and even that's rare, which is why these recent black bear attacks are worrying officials. So normally it's a brown bear that attacks, yeah, and those are, those are rare, but now all of a sudden these black bear attacks are happening, and they're not sure why. All of a sudden you have two in the course of two days. It's, it's, it's a lightning strike, says a wildlife biologist. Uh, Rick Sinot, when he's talking with CBS, Alaskan officials are telling residents to carry bear spray or a gun while hiking, running, or biking through bear habitat, and if attacked, to throw rocks at the bear or hit it in the face rather than run away or play dead. Okay, so this is what we do. You you, you throw rocks at it, Yeah, hit it in the face, do not play dead No, with a brown, a black bear. With apparently any bear. They're saying fight back, don't, don't play dead like you've heard to do. Yeah, I mean, fighting back... I don't know. You just could try to you could try to reason with the bear. Bear, you're breaking it. What am I gonna do? Yeah, you could just have bear, that annoying nagging that. scream. Stop breaking my thing. It's not even food. It doesn't even taste good. <laughs> Why are you here? Oh. Yeah, the bear got. Oh, oh, it sounds like the bear got her. <laughs> Again, more evidence of the animal kingdom rising up. Yeah. The mainstream media continuing to cover it up. You know, what is the deal with the media covering up this stuff? I did Actually, not... no, they report on it whenever it happens. Because uh, it's a bear attack. It's scary. It totally is. What's, what do you think is scarier? A bear attack? Would you rather be attacked by Ooh, a bear? Would you rather? Or have LeBron James' crying face tattooed on your leg? Leg. Really? Yeah. That guy's a moron. You would rather have a permanent... <laughs> face of LeBron crying on your calf than you would and the bear I mean a bear attack's going to be over in a few seconds but yeah. I I imagine the pain of a tattoo would be much less severe than the pain of a bear attack no and it depends how you fight I oh, yeah, wouldn't yeah. fight I mean if you're a fi- <laughs> if you if you remember if you're going to take on a bear you fight and you aim for his nose where do you aim when you're trying to fight a bear I would say nose and eyes go for the eyes yeah it's like with a shark. You just start. I, when you're close enough to a bear to be going for the eyes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. I think it's over. I think I'd rather have the tattoo. And I'm not even into. I well, don't believe in tattoos. The, the, the thing with this tattoo is like after a week, you're done. I mean, you well, don't care really. about this. No, every time he, you wear your shorts to church. He said he did this. The, <laughs> the guy did this because LeBron lost in the finals and he always he's always crying. So we're just going to go ahead and put this on my leg. And in about 10 years, you're going to look down and go, I don't even care about this anymore. But it's on your leg. It's on your leg. He's not a fan of LeBron. He probably doesn't. Re- he probably dislikes him. But LeBron's not going to be playing in 10 it's, years. It's a Salt Lake City man. Uh, took his disdain for G- King James by tattooing the leg. And th- the neat thing is his, his leg is red because I guess he just recently got the tattoo. But it's a white. Yeah. It's yeah. It's got a perfect contrast. 
but it, so his his LeBron's crying face. I mean, it's he, LeBron's in full grimace. Yes, painful cry grimace. Wouldn't you just make a T-shirt? Yeah, that's what I would. Wouldn't that yeah, make more maybe. sense? Imagine what that tattoo is going to look like in about forty years when his skin starts to sag. He's really going to look sad then. Oh boy, he's going to look, look like that—the ugliest dog, that <laughs> mastiff. <laughs> That really, yeah, that's not going to be good. Uh, anyway, so that's one thing you can do. By the way, Mel Brooks apparently uh, celebrating his 90 what birthday, 91st? He's 91 today. Holy cow. Hear me. Oh, hear me. The Lord Jehovah has given unto you these 15. Oh, lost five. Ten. Ten commandments for all to obey. <laughs> so, and, so there's Mel Brooks uh, as Noah, d- as Noah, and des- no Moses. Sorry, Moses, Moses describing the the loss of five commandments. And it's an accident. We could have had fifteen commandments. Now we're down to ten. Oh, what a talent Mel Brooks is, though. Really, um, think of how many roles he's played. Ninety-one years young. And I wonder if his humor, I wonder if he's losing it, or is he just... Oh, no. I mean, he's probably the hit of the... Real quick, best Mel Brooks movie, in your opinion? Uh, Space Balls. Really? I would go with Young Frankenstein, hands oh, down. Oh, yeah, no, that's good, too. That's good. That's good. See? That's why you do the movie show. We'll take a break, folks. When we come back, uh, we're going to be talking about why we need to be investing in robots instead of running from them. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you lead a healthier life. You know, everybody thought that uh, by the year 2017, we'd all be living a life like the Jetsons, right? With our own little personal robots. And computers, everything, flying our little airplane cars all over town. But uh, it doesn't seem to be working out that way. You know, the Jetsons didn't seem to fear the robots nearly as much as we do or robotic advancement and technology. So what would be the best future to kind of continue to avoid the robot world or to embrace it and invest in it and and, and then enjoy the fruits of having being being a leader in the world of robotics. Well, joining us to uh, talk about it is an assistant professor at the University of Colorado at Boulder, Nicholas uh, Carell. He's he's a professor there, but he, we're actually skyping him in from Europe. And uh, so, Nicholas, are you there? Can you hear us? Uh, yes. Now, Nick, how, how do you say your last name, Nicholas? It's a Corel. Corel. So, so Nicholas, when you, it's a big thing because forever it seems like we've been talking about the fact that robots are taking so many jobs. Uh, all the jobs, you know, are are being taken away by um, automation, by robotics, and then globalization as well. It, but yet, you're you're suggesting we need to embrace this movement instead of uh, running from it. Uh, yes. Um... I completely agree with that view. I, I hear myself a little bit. I have to probably turn off. Um, yeah, turn, yeah, turn down your equipment, and then you'll then you won't have that feedback. Okay. Um, yeah, I totally agree with you. Uh, I've been thinking about this um, too because uh, when you develop technology and um, you hear uh, concerns, then um, you probably shouldn't do it if uh, those concerns are just. And so I've thought about it a little bit and. I came to the conclusion that um, 
if other people are better at automating things, um, then we will not manufacture anything anymore, uh, but uh, they will. That's right. We turn. I guess we turn over the advantage to the other manufacturers. And um, but one benefit of robotics and and automation is, I guess, the fact that there are a lot of jobs behind it. Uh, yeah. So that is <clears throat> one of the answers people give first and say, "Well, we will have." new jobs that make the robots and I don't think uh, that is fully true because of course you have much lesser uh, robots um, or much less lesser people working in robotic making than uh, robots doing things. Um, I think though we will get a whole new um, level of products so we will have products that are just much more complex than the products we have now and this is uh, how it always has evolved so when you look at a flat screen TV or something and you go back 50 years and you look at what people would have bought then, um, there is a much, much bigger um, chain of uh, people that are involved, uh, much more companies, much more resources uh, that have been efficiently combined so that this flat screen uh, um, television is actually affordable. So I think that will happen with automation that we will get more and more sophisticated products that have more functionality um, and advance uh, society as a whole, as as it always has done since the invention of the power loom, um, where we now have uh, great yeah. clothes that we can wear um, at very low cost. Is it um, because, for exa- an example of that uh, in the article you wrote was the fact that one of the manufacturers of iPhones also is one of the bigger, uh, aren't they one of the bigger users of robotics and automated systems? Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. That is what got me originally interested in this um, story, because um, I always heard that Foxconn, which has which is making the iPhone and has uh, more than one million employees, uh, that they want to um, replace all their employees with robots. And I always thought, well, I'm a robotics researcher. Um, robotics are not there yet. It's very difficult to do that. And then I read, well, wait a minute, they already have sixty thousand robots. And then I realized, well the robots you need to put an iPhone together are actually very simple contraptions um, that might use, they move a piece of glass over there and place it down and then you apply some glue here or you um, put in a screw there. And the big problem is simply that um, you need to change all this robot manufacturing lines every few months when Foxconn engages in new activities. So we're actually really, really close and Foxconn is buying robots like crazy um, and now they put their first factory to into the U.S. And I was just thinking, well, what happens if um, we will have a robotic manufacturing facility that is operated by Foxconn and owned by Foxconn in the U.S.? Uh, then we probably lost uh, the train completely because then um, uh, we will not be able to uh, employ anybody anymore because it's not about made in China versus made in the U.S., but it's really about how efficiently it is being made. And with, I guess, robotics, it can be efficiently made anywhere. It can be efficiently made anywhere and will probably be made um, where uh, transport costs are lowest. Okay. So so one of the the proposals or uh, positions you're taking is robotics, it's not necessarily going to get its jobs just because, you know, there will be a bigger industry – uh, supporting robotics, you're saying it, it's it is the wave of the future, and if you are not in the wave and leading the wave, you're going to miss the wave. 
are you going to miss the wave um, and you will have subsidized workers that work on products that then get threatened by automated factories that are just next door and crank out the same product for much less. Mm. And there's no trade regulations that can uh, prevent that because as soon as you allow people to erect those uh, those companies, then um, that's it. And so I don't think that uh, prohibiting anything will help because the market will find, find ways. So I think it's happening and we should lead it. And right now uh, we are rather not leading it. And who are the leaders in in the use of uh, automation and robotics technology? Who who what countries are and governments, I guess, are supporting the growth in that area? So the classical leader is Japan, um, which started to threaten the U.S. industry in the 80s and then very successfully has developed um, car manufacturing and optical things and cameras. And they have been massively investing in robots and manufacturing line automation. Um, but what happens now in Japan is they're worried about their elderly uh, community and now the government is um, investing in robots that make life easier for all people. Um, it is really China who invests um, tremendously in manufacturing robots. So um, there's just one province which spends $2 billion. So the government of the province does that to bring robots in and spur development. And these numbers are very, very much um, different than those that we have in the U.S., which are more in the order of hundreds of millions of dollars that are being invested. Hundreds of millions are being invested in China. What... What's, uh, billions what's, are oh, hundreds of billions are, yeah invested in china yeah, it's, it's, it's it's um two to five billion dollars and in u s it's more like a hundred million or oh, million. so so really because it, it almost seems like our fear of um automation and robotics and and kind of the com- the the complaining that we've been having that all of our jobs are being shipped away or being replaced by robotics. And then the shipping away would be more like globalization. We're losing all of our jobs to the global marketplace. And um, but but you're you're suggesting if we don't if we don't make a few adjustments, like instead of running from globalization, some embracing of it. And on top of that, automation, a focus on investing as a government in automation at higher levels, at like a lot higher levels, then we will probably lose the the automation race to China, which means a lot of those jobs will be going, uh, not just jobs, but a lot of the manufacturing will be going to China. Yeah, the value creation. And I mean, when you say globalization, um, you said it in the beginning, it's globalization and automation working hand in hand. Mm-hmm. What that means concretely is... Um, People buy more and more things that are already pre-made, let's say a carburetor or a cable assembly or something. And so they buy that from abroad and then they assemble it with more automation. So you lose you lose uh, manual labor on two ends, one in the more complex uh, things that you buy already made and then the other robots that uh, put these things together. Now, um, globalization um, will probably continue as well to drive costs and you know first it shifted where the work is done which is china for all the low cost uh, stuff and now it enabled those people to actually do the work and understand what it takes to do the work and now um they automate it so 
should we have never given them the job? I don't think so, because, um, of course, we lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty by doing that. Um, so I think um, that is, I mean, I, I feel like the globalization is a different uh, topic almost. Yeah, no. that, well, you, but it kind of is the topic of the day in, you know, with the Trump election, with Brexit and with a lot of the kind of nationalistic uh, debates that have been going on through Europe. Um, I, I guess we're facing a reality, though, and the reality is there are jobs and manufacturing uh, going on and there is there is very much a race for this Um and in a way, the United States, we're just not investing. We're not attacking this race as aggressively as maybe China is. Why is that, do you, do you suggest? Why aren't the United States, why aren't we more aggressively trying to be on the front end of this? Uh, so um, we, the first answer is because we are already, of course, the leaders in worldwide science and technology and that makes us a little bit more, um, you know, laid back. So if China invests billions of dollars and we just hundreds of millions, that also means that China has a lot of catch up to do. Um, the second reason is maybe um, it is a, a populist um, a thing to do to uh, not think the things through completely. And I'm not sure I'm right with my hypothesis, but I feel like you quickly realize that um, just keeping the jobs here forcefully cannot be the answer. Or, you know, the trade deficit is also something, I have a huge trade deficit with my local grocer, um, <laughs> which then enables me to make money as a professor and educate people. And I don't go and grow my own vegetables right. to, to lower that. So the trade deficit, I, I can't spend more money than I make. Um, but so it, it's a complicated dis decision. Um, you ask why we are behind um, and so I think the answer number one that I gave is that we're already leading very much and that makes us a little bit lazier is probably the best, um, especially because we haven't seen any policy uh, really kicking in yet. Yeah. So we're still in the process of finding out what, what we should do. Well, and it's almost like we don't understand. We were just joking about this in the startup to the show that we don't understand the future enough to understand what we need for the future. And it's it's like it, it seems like. We keep thinking you brought up the idea that by brute force, we could just purely keep all manufacturing in the United States. But as more and more technology advances, as robotics, as automation advances, it, it, it's going to reach a tipping point where it's just not realistic and, and or prudent or financially able or the highest quality and so it seems like if we are not leading dramatically the technology sector and advancement sector of uh, robotics and automation, then we really are going to be very far behind the wave of ever creating or being able to benefit from those jobs. Yeah, so you said the future, in order to understand the future, you need to know the future. Of course, that would be optimal, but if you know the past, of course, we have a lot of precedents of uh, massive and very ugly disruptions from automation um, that then have essentially lifted the entire society to a new plateau when it comes to education and healthcare. Um, so uh, I think uh, this could also be um, uh, one way of finding answers on what to do. And people say, well, this time it's different. 
it's going to be so fast uh, and it's going to happen before you know it and only very few rich people will get richer because they own those robots and everybody else uh, doesn't get anything. Uh, I, I don't think that's true. I, I think looking back at the past and looking at what the steam engine has done, what the what the loom has done, and I mean also what the internet has done, because the internet has done a lot, but also not that much. Um, so I, I think that is um, something we, we should not forget. Yeah, no, that's a huge point. Let's do this, uh, Nicholas. Let's take a break, come back, and we'll continue the journey. I'm, I'm, I'm also interested in some of your other insights into robotics where – it's it's not even the manufacturing sectors uh, that that may be as deeply impacted as as just our own personal lives. Like you were talking about Japan and the senior market uh, of taking care of seniors with with robotics or and automation, as well as just home businesses, the ability to do repetitive tasks over in an easier way. How interesting is our future going to get? Just in a local level with affordable robotics and the impact that could have on our economy. Stick with us. More with Dr. Nicholas Carell in just a minute. We're talking robots. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. We're speaking with Dr. Nicholas Carell. He is an assistant professor at the University of Colorado at Boulder, and uh, his research focuses on practical robot applications that target grand challenge applications, such as sustainable food production, manufacturing, the exploration of space. Today, he's talking to us also about why the United States, we really ought to, instead of fearing the robotic movement, we need to probably be aggressively investing in it so that we can uh, play a bigger part in it and in leading it and um, in, in benefiting from it uh, long term. And also, I think, changing the world, being able to influence more lives with our products, with our goods. Uh, Dr. Nicholas Carell, thank you again for being with us today. Matt, thanks for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. This is, I think, fascinating topic. And one of the points, I guess, that we we need to make sure we get out there is um, this this movement's going to happen. We, we've talked about it mainly in the manufacturing world, but robots are there. They they really help us and can have the ability to help us in a variety of ways. Talk about just some of the more mundane robotic or automated systems that could exist for us that that would change our lives dramatically in our own small private businesses as we're aging citizens? How else can robots impact us over time? Uh, so I really love a video from the 1960s, which is the Unimate robot, which is the first industrial robot that has ever been built uh, for sheet uh, welding applications and they made a video where the robot made breakfast um, for a family and made everything it was completely staged and people were sitting at home in the living room and probably had similar radio shows going and yet uh, 50 60 years later uh, we haven't really gotten there and to me really the question is whether this will ever happen um, because I feel like if people wanted such a robot that does the breakfast they probably would have it by now. And right. on the other hand, they do. They have waffle makers and espresso machines and 
um, things like that, which are all, if you want robots, they are highly automated. There's the Thermomix, which is now coming to America, this cooking thing where you can throw in stuff and you get out a risotto. Um, <laughs> but on the other hand, if you talk to people, and I try to, to see where should I do my research and ask them, do you want a dishwashing robot? And Matt, I can ask you that. Do you want a dishwashing uh, a robot that empties your dishwasher? Oh, that would be great. But it's, I mean, I got kids. How much? I got kids. Yeah, how much would I pay for? No, I mean, right now, that's not where I, what I, I would, I mean, maybe someone to mow my lawn, maybe just somebody to, something to pull my weeds. You, you can buy both, uh, but you didn't. Yeah. Because um, is it just the I mean, cost? It's just, I, I, it, the cost is not low enough yet. Yeah, I don't know. I think the cost and the functionality with the lawnmower robots are something that takes me back and the thing breaks and then gets stuck and who knows. True. But the dishwasher, I realized uh, people don't want to pay anything for this. And what you need is you need two dishwashers. One is the cabinet and the other one is the washing. Hmm. And then you, you swap, you know, so that solves the problem. But people don't even do that. So I feel like... Um, it is very difficult. So I, I think the answer is what happens is we will see intelligent systems um, penetrating more and more our life. And the real novelty is that now mobility is pretty much solved. So you can have things that navigate in warehouses, in homes um, without getting lost and finding their places. So I think we will very soon see uh, butler robots, which um, are essentially Alexa on wheels, right. you know, the Amazon service, the Google service. And you you will have maybe you can put a Coke on that or you can send it to the kitchen. Um, uh, the other big thing that I think is going to happen very soon is um, people are paying money for uh, mobile robots. So they do buy lawnmowers, they do buy vacuum cleaners, they do buy hotel service robots. But I think all of those robots would tremendously benefit if they had an arm on them. Hmm. So the vacuum cleaner could pick up stuff on the floor, the mower can, you know, remove debris, uh, the hotel robot can place soaps onto the sinks or, you know, um, retrieve items from the uh, mini mini uh, market. So um, I, I think that is what's going to happen next, but it will be very, um, it will not be very disruptive. It will be very slowly just changing uh, what we do daily. Yeah. You you brought up in in this article um, uh, in the conversation you wrote an article to really help U.S. workers we should invest in robots, but one of the points you made too it it seems like is the the actual um, the data I don't know what you call it the programming of the robot is becoming easier than I think we think it is, and I, I guess if the if the programming of a robot is easier and and there's more there's easier systems to use to program a robot then we might be able to start you know maybe smaller mid-sized organizations might be able to be introduced to robotics and automation systems a little earlier even small businesses might be able to use the robots to do repetitive activities yeah that's exactly right i um the collaborative robotic market is booming, and there's a Danish company which has been bought by a U.S. company. It's Universal Robots. Uh, they sell arms for small and medium-sized enterprises, and the software they have is actually so simple that it's probably like Lego Mindstorms. And now I think a lot of people could program something and make the robot work, but the problem is once you put a $60,000 item in your shop, then nobody can touch it anymore because it's hmm. a robot. Yeah. And of course, the people at home and tuning their cars and doing all sorts of crazy stuff, 
playing Mindstorm with their kids, but then they don't even know that they could go and maybe retro retrofit that robot themselves or reprogram it or download something from the internet, uh, like an app that uh, does this or does that. So I think that is, uh, we are very much where the mainframe industry was um, in the late 90s, where you had to call a guy for $3,000 a day to fly in to right. do some shell scripting for you, which now um, a 15-year-old can do. It's so true. And um, I mean, do you, do you sense that there will be a day that there will be kind of the robot hobbyist, the person that just loves tinkering, and now they're automating their little business? So these people also exist already um, in the maker community. And I think the most prominent ones are the 3D printer people. Mm, yeah. Because they are essentially roboticists, if you want. They have this thing that moves with multiple axes and you know, it doesn't have wheels. But um, I think there are tools like or things that are available, like the Microsoft Connect for $150, which can see in 3D and see colors. And there's open source software with which you can recognize objects. Um, so people start putting things together and creating products um, that are possibly um, worthwhile uh, and then move them to Kickstarter or to Indiegogo and um, make a lot of money. So that already happens. Um, it's a small movement and it's expensive to get involved. Yeah. And I think it mostly lacks arms. That are cheap. That are that are cheap, and and so I mean, I already have a boy. Uh, how old is he? He's probably fourteen year old friend of my son's that has a three D printer and is in just loves kind of coding it and designing new stuff, downloading new uh, kind of freeware type of programs, and I I, I guess this is the future. Um, do we? So are we? Do we have too much fear? And too much, I guess, ignorance about what is robotics and and our role as a human in in relation to robotics. What, what is it just about the psychology of automation? I, I, and robotics? I think I would generally subscribe to fear and ignorance uh, for myself on many levels and on many topics. Uh, I think that's very human. Um, so anything like health. Um, and so robotics is one of them. Um, now, I'm. Um, actively involved in these things and yeah. once you are actively involved in any of these um, topics that are creating fear and that people are ignorant about uh, then you lose the fear and um, with the ignorance i think um, and that's the answer yeah no, so that's true. i think there have been much worse technologies that we have unleashed on mankind like um, the atomic bomb um, or maybe crispr is the next one you know where you have to be really careful what you do with that um, and so I feel like um, we usually have that discussion in a very meaningful way and usually do not annihilate the planet um, so far. Now, why would it be now? There's always this opportunity and then fear comes, of course, back. Um, but I think it is mostly uh, done with overcoming um, not knowing about something. Hmm. Yeah, getting more informed about it. What... Uh... As we wrap this up, what what do you suggest? Because um, there is a statistic that 38% of American jobs are at high risk of being replaced by technology within the next 15 years. So give us two or three steps of what we should be doing just as an average person, average consumer, or as parents who are trying to raise our kids up uh, with a future um, in the world. Uh, what can we be doing to, to maybe better adapt to the world of technology that's coming? 
Uh, I think to stay curious and, and embrace education is uh, probably the safest bet. And this is also the hardest question you've asked, um, because if you are really in a situation that, you know, you just drive cars or trucks and that's the only thing you can know and it's going to be uh, replaced, then you will be um, a victim like the t tens of thousands of people in Massachusetts when the power looms came. And so I think the answer there is also that we should probably think as a society uh, how to capture that. So about what you do is, I mean, when you are smart and you look after yourself, you probably switch jobs fast enough and not to scare anybody, this truck thing is not going to happen anytime soon and it's going to be a very smooth process. And But there will be disruption and I think we need to think about how to deal with that, how yeah. to, how, what to do and what to offer um, people that are concerned with this and that actually having you know, that um, that sacrificed um, for us to have um, these services. I mean, this is the other thing. The, everybody wanted the power the loom people until the power loom came. And so um, it's a very, I think that's a very um, long conversation to have. Yeah. Um, but I think that's a very important part. I, I, I agree. And I, one of the things I did love from your article was the idea that so much of kind of the innate abilities, skills, um, uh, already exists. So if, if somebody can, is already like curious and is working and figuring out their own engine, their own automobile, they're curious about the internet, they, a lot of these skills the people have and they would actually work really well with automation and, and um, even, even though they don't consider themselves a computer scientist, you don't necessarily need to be a computer scientist to succeed in this upcoming future. I fully agree. Um, and I always say mechanical engineering already has created a vocational environment. Computer science is still so new that people think about it as, as the rocket science of our days. Mm -hmm. And now rocket science is really not that, um, you know, you know what I mean? It's, I feel like robotics and computers, the, the things that people are at, at the forefront of knowledge are usually the terms that people, I don't want to discredit the rocket scientists um, I, you know what yeah, I mean. Yeah, totally. But it was the, it was the reach. That was always the intellectual reach. Uh, yeah, I think profession. It's shifting. Yeah, and people can really. Um, it's a becoming a vocational thing to deal with computers and play with three uh, D printers as much as it was to play with cars. Um, and you know, open the hood and look, and then ask friends, "Hey, how do I fix this? Mm -hmm. um, I want to. I don't want to bring it into the shop." Yeah. So um, yeah. It sounds like the real key is, as you just said, Nicholas, uh, stay curious, stay curious and embrace education because this is going to be a, a kind of a continuous learning process along the way. Uh, Dr. Nicholas Carell is his name, assistant professor at the University of Colorado at Boulder and a uh, wonderful article. You, you really ought to uh, be thinking about your own kids and how you keep them curious and keep them moving forward with this uh, automated world that's coming up. You know, we may not have a day very soon where we have Rosie the robot like the Jetsons had, but and apparently it may not be something we all want because we're not pushing it very hard, are we? We're just not personally looking for that assistant yet. But uh, stick with us, helping you see the good in the world and prepare to be that good for that automated future. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. 
Hey, we're going to take a little uh, jump to the future here because we, we talk about robotics, and he made a really great point that do would you want a robotic dishwasher, and how much would you really pay for it? And in my head, I'm like, when I'm thinking robotics, dishwashing's not the thing I'm going for. Really? I, I just want, I mean, there, there's a lot of other things I'd rather have automated. Weeding. Oh, yeah. At our house, weeding. Diaper changing? Yeah, I don't know that I want a robot changing my humans. <laughs> I just want my dishwasher to be quiet. Ours really? is kind of loud. We need a new one. You know what? Like, you turn it on, and if the TV's on in the room, you're just like, turn it up. And then it's just so loud in the room. And yeah. You know what? Our dishwashers eat a lot. Well, there's that. They're annoying. They fight. My Because I was uh, down because of my surgery, I didn't go to church this Sunday. Mm. I did not... Oh, come on. I know. And so my wife sent a video of my boys at church fighting, like literally throwing each other against the wall. Nice. It was. And she recorded it. Was, it. it was unsettling. And so I, I think what I'm going to do, I'm going to get a hold of that video and I'm going to post it on our Twitter feed. This is what my boys are doing at church. I mean, literally, one of my sons was throwing the other son against the wall. They're all dressed up, suit and tie kind of thing. Right. And just pounding on each other. Is it to the point where mom just can't jump into the middle of that? Yeah, she just was filming it like, look what, look at this. Mm. Yeah. This is why I need you here to. There was a point where my mom kids. just sort of gave up because, yeah. you know, her sons are bigger than she, you know, and her actually trying to physically stop something was just yeah. not going to happen. So boys will be boys. Yeah. I threw my brother against the wall one time and then I got out of there as fast as I could. Why? Wow. I had my, I found my window of opportunity. You took, took him it, out. And then I just. Took off running. Were you afraid of your mom, your dad, or your oh, brother? No. no. He's, you know, almost four years older than yeah. me. So, so you, yeah. dodge, you, you get your bullet. sucker punch in and then Sorry. run. Dodge the bullet. <laughs> Good. A little advice for all of you. Get your sucker punch in and run. We'll take a break. Come back next hour. Next hour, we're talking about weightlifting. It's really good for you. It's ridiculously good for you. Stick with us.